Hello and welcome to episode 311 of the Crate and Crowbar, a PC gaming podcast being recorded on the 5th of February. I don't know why I need to look at the date since it's <laughs> the day before my birthday. I should remember that really. Happy oh, birthday yeah, happy to birth- me yeah. from the day that this goes out yesterday. Mm. Also happy birthday to uh, Paul Scott Canavan, whose birthday I share. Excellent. Very nice man. Mm. Very nice man. Mm. I wish him well on his 34th birthday, enviably several years younger than I am. Sounds a little bit stalkery. No, he said it on Twitter today. Oh, okay. Just happy to see you. <laughs> <laughs> um, have I said all the things I need to say in the You haven't said who you are or who we are. Oh, right. Yeah, I knew I was missing something. <laughs> I'm Marsh Davis. <laughs> uh, and who are you? Uh, I'm Chris Thurston. And? And I'm Alex Wiltshire, and this is the Creighton Crowbar Podcast. Excellent. Uh, energy That's in the room. Energy in the room. Uh, we've got some news this week, haven't we? Hmm. Shall we start with, um, or uh, the, the most least interesting news, GeForce's new streaming service? Oh, the energy has left the room. <laughs> <laughs> I mostly want to talk about it because it, it was, it was real news to me today what it actually is. I thought it was like a subscription service where you stream the games. Mm for a set price and you just have access to all the games that they have on the service like netflix but apparently that's not what it is mm. apparently you can stream games only if you already own them and maybe or you buy them on the service that, oh you can that wasn't yeah, clear yeah, to me yeah. in some of the yeah. articles written I mean, about it's it. not very clear even on the websites but i'm almost certain you can buy them on the g4 store of some is this related to the was it the Shield? They had like a tablet that you would stream games yeah. to from your PC a while ago. I think that that is like a piece of middle hardware that you can use to facilitate mm. uh, this service on some devices, but it's not necessary for all of them. That's right. what I understood from what was not a very clear <laughs> amount of information about this day. Also, it seems like there are two subscription packages, one of which is free, but limits you to an hour per session and one of which you pay for, which limits you to six hours per session. But it's not clear exactly how these sessions are apportioned, why these sessions would be limited at all, why mm. they would go for limiting a session. Yeah, I don't know how you, I mean, I, it can't it be as simple as just sort of, no, 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 but it can't be as simple as just sort of like, oh, log in, log off, or log off, log on back in not. again. But like, yeah, I mean, but, but if it's like 4.99 for this, for this six hours, what, what do you get for the? I mean, is it just four ninety nine and that's six hours and that's gone and you pay another four ninety nine or? I would suggest it's literally. I, I mean, because oh, that God seems it. mad. That'd be very what? expensive Hang very on. quickly. If it, what if it was fourteen four ninety nine once that allowed you to play six hours of every game <laughs> and only six hours? That is a podcaster's <laughs> dream. <laughs> that's a practical press account for the modern person. Hmm. I'd, I'd go in for that. That's not what it is. No. Nor possible. <laughs> um, but hey. But apparently people say it's, it's, uh, it's going toe to toe with Stadia and in some ways better, but I don't really, I can see some use cases for it, but I, but for most people, is that, is that really what they want? Yeah, as with, as with, to games you already own on some other device, presumably implying that you can already play them. Mm, I don't, I don't know. Right. Well, the question is, if you're, if the problem, you know, is I can't play Apex Legends on the toilet. Then do you do this? You know, how elaborate does this game of 4D chess you have to play to construct a scenario where that's possible become, um, before you just snap and go, I'm going to buy a bathroom PlayStation. <laughs> it's you know funny, I mean? isn't it? Cause yeah. like the stadia proposition is like, has, has been, uh, this is the service for 
you know, two billion people. It's not, it's not mm. necessarily for the sort of high end existing PC gamers. It's about the people who don't own a PC and it's opens yeah. up all of these PC games to those people, um, you know, on, on existing or low cost hardware. Uh, that's what their argument is. It's definitely what is what the service isn't right now because there's no freeze here and, you know, it's kind of shaky as hell and nobody's internet connection is reliable, you know, a very small proportion of internet connections are reliable enough to actually support it properly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also they've been going on about 4K and stuff. And mm. if you're talking about 2 billion people, I think very, very, very small proportion of those people give a shit about 4K. Or right. Mm. So it's really fucking muddled. GeForce, like... The only people who have heard of GeForce are the, the, the highbrow kind of PC elite who mm. already have the machine. Right. So another way of thinking about this is actually for 2 billion people thing is a, I, I think for the reasons you stated is a bit of a, I think that's a not quite right. I think what these things actually are are ways for people to, who, to, to kind of leap. So when people invest heavily in their entertainment setup, you're, you know, tunneling a particular path for yourself. There's a big console setup or a, you know, movies or whatever your home cinema or whatever it is. Once you made that investment, some people go on and invest sort of broadly, but a lot of people invest quite narrowly. And a system like this is a way for people to leap from one strand of that kind of investment to the other. But I still think you're operating within the ecosystem mm-hmm. who are willing to spend a certain amount of money on their entertainment and investigate alternative options for getting things. So you're right that like, there's probably someone somewhere in the world with an amazing TV setup and great internet that they use for streaming 4K movies because that's their passion for which Stadia is an interesting idea because it allows them to suddenly have access to a high-end kind of gaming setup with no additional or minimal additional expense. I think it's actually a niche edge case than anyone can use this and it gives them access to games because it just doesn't. Like, mm. I was joking about bathroom PlayStation, but like the great, you know, I think it's a useful touchstone your solution in this regard, your offering as a streaming service has to be easier than going out and buying a PlayStation. It just has to be. And I don't think any of them are right. Yeah. Like if you think of the ubiquity of the PlayStation two as a kind of device Hmm. that has led to a kind of mass understanding of what it is and how you go about getting and, and finding a video game. I just don't think any of these things are, actually weirdly sort of accessible enough in terms of just no. conceptually accessible enough well just i mean that. just updating my geforce drivers is harder than going out and buying a playstation i, I haven't yeah i haven't done it in months because i don't oh, want yeah. to log in you need to point at all those different traffic lights and identify them carefully yeah, exactly. <laughs> every single time yeah <laughs> i think sort of going back to the sort of this the difference with this one so this one uh, with GeForce, you get to play games you already own, um, or ones you buy on a service. Uh, that's for the people who are just dabbling and want to try it out. Mm. It's a better proposition than Stadia, where your purchase is locked to Stadia. Like, you know, yeah, you know, right. Yeah. When you buy on Stadia, sure. like, mm, you, you better continue on Stadia then. Um, with this one, at least it's a, it's somewhat, um, uh, you know, I suppose it also depends. I mean, it could be attractive to me if the, if it's really easy to turn off uh, and on again whenever I feel the need. Like, I could see, like, buying a game like Control, which has, you know, facilities that my graphics card can't support for ray tracing, mm. and just saying, hmm, I'll pay four ninety nine this month on top of the price of the game just to see what it looks like uh, on a super hot machine, some cloud fucking farm somewhere. And then, um, 
and then turn it off after I've finished the game or after six hours, whichever comes first, I guess. Right. There is a, there is a, there is a niche use of I've just thought of, which is very specific to you. Oh. Which is when you're not able to be at home, you can play games. Yes, games. this is true. Yeah. Yeah. Traveling man. Traveling man. Mm. Yeah, but would you? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's my issue with it. Like, I just think it's solving a problem that it sounds like lots of people have, but I don't think lots of people have. Yeah. So the, the, I think that the, the thing that I fear, which I think is going to be horrible, and I think it's inevitable, but right now it seems to be too difficult. Um, and the, it's a thing that will make it actually have a reason to exist mm. is when it becomes the Netflix of games, when it has a bunch of, basically has all the games or at least a lot of the games on it and you pay your monthly subscription and you can play them as much as you like, you know, whichever you like. And I think that's, that's when this suddenly pops into sort of, you know, in, into some, some sort of sense, because then, you know, you don't have the installs like, you know, as journalists, we're familiar with the, the, the fact that like I have access to a lot of games and I don't play them because each, you know, 40 gigabyte game is a massive great download. And, oh God, I got mm. to think about that. And then have I got the, the install space? And, mm. you know, mm. that, that immediately gets rid of that for, for everybody. But of course, the, the Netflix of games things means that if people are dabbling in games, presumably the publisher developer getting paid on the basis of the amount of time people are playing and you mm. can see immediately you know the form of games it's completely different it becomes about yeah. retaining time you know for all games not just you know not just free to play and i fear that yeah future i can see that having a profoundly. huge distorting influ in, uh, influence on the but shape it feels of games, inevitable also... yeah yeah I mean, I mean apple arcade is, is essentially this right but but I think Apple Arcade is different in the sense that Apple Arcade curated. is like this little walled garden where these are specifically mm. commissioned games, mm. like a very tight Which is selection more like Netflix. of games. Yeah. 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 Maybe, yeah. yeah. It's the new Netflix proposition rather than what Netflix promised right. to be way yeah. back. I sort of, I do wonder though, just about, obviously the, the, the massive if there is, if it works and if and when it actually works reliably for the vast majority of people, it's a mm. vast technical challenge just from the network infrastructure of the thing. That's one thing. But also, for me, like, I just, I wonder about, I think you're absolutely right. Like, if it did work, it would certainly become an essential thing for and it's certainly anyone who kind of works in games media or, or even works in the games industry or people who are just super into just games. normal people. Like, you, well, you yeah. But, but I, I just don't know if the way the, you know, an audience, particularly outside of that, really, because if we're talking about this is the technology that broadens it beyond the kind of hobbyist sphere that knows every game that's coming out and is clued up and has all the hardware and stuff and expands it to everyone else. I don't think it solves a far more fundamental issue with the attractiveness of games beyond that boundary, right? right? Like, So if, you're thinking about the two billion thing. Yeah, like I, it's, it's the thing I still don't buy because I, I just, I don't think, basically... The, I don't think the reason that two to X billion people aren't playing Assassin's Creed right now is because they can't summon it instantly to their phone. I, I think it is yeah. because they don't want to. 
And that's, you know, that's not to shame that game or people who like, you know, hockey games. It's just that there are, you know, there are tremendous and kind of extensive reasons why people don't know about games or don't think about games or don't consider games as things mm-hmm. they might do. People, why people play one game and one game exclusively for a long time, which doesn't really fit the Netflix model. Why would I pay a subscription if I'm just going to play FIFA? Cause it's the game I like. Like they games fit into people's lives in a very different way to TV. So Google Google has an answer for that because like, I I actually did a feature about it mm. a while ago and I spoke to so Jade Raymond said she's the head of um, the internal studios at um, at Stadia now. Yeah. She was she was Assassin's Creed the producer back in the mm. day, but um, uh, she said that they're thinking about that. They're expecting you know with the two billion question in mind if that does come to pass they fully think that games are totally changed because the audience is so much broader mm. and all these different people coming to games and making them and you know playing them and, and offering a market for them will will broaden what games are yeah the games they are right now are totally tailored to the kind of tiny rarefied sliver of people who play them but right. like when it does become two billion fuck it's i mean it's like it's like what games are on on um on mobile you know it's not it's not assassin's creed but it fucking is a bunch of other games that sometimes aren't even recognizable to us as games yeah i know I, I completely understand that but i just perceive a little bit of the chicken and egg problem there where like you mm-hmm. can you can solve the problem of expanding technical technical access to games but you pay for that by getting the you know to, by bringing the existing audience along with you mm-hmm. right like no one is solving both problems at the same time Right. Like the, that's why the NVIDIA thing is an interesting example. It's like, well, we can, you know, maybe this NVIDIA idea is the perfect R&D environment for this kind of technology because you offer a more, you know, you, you, you don't target it at that two billion, you target it at the people who may already don't, may not need it and then get it right and then expand it out. I don't know, but that's the problem for me is like, how do you sell this? To people, the reason I picked Assassin's Creed is because that was the game that was used to demo the stadia in the first place. Mm. Like, how do you sell this to people as an idea without rooting it in the industry that exists? And how do you make good on it if it works without not doing that? Without that not being your offering? Mm. Like, I don't know. It, it's, I don't think it's a doomed idea necessarily. I just think that there are bigger complexities. I, mean, I think the, launch, the stadia's launch definitely has been a total. I mean, I when when I read, writing the article, it's like I was thinking. This is just ridiculous that they, you know, that they've got, they're making no internal games that kind of trade on its specific, you know, functionalities and things, which are quite cool about streaming and whatnot. And, you know, Mm. they're not actually demonstrating why it's good. They're Mm. getting existing games just running as they more or less do anyway. You know, you're launching far too soon and it turns out that the tech isn't good in the wild you know it's yeah you know and so on and it and then of course you get all the kind of the news stories about 4k not being 4k and it running on medium settings and not the high settings and all this sort of stuff that means nothing to two billion people but you know to the people who did buy into it who are the high end anyway do care about that if they do they launched too soon and they it was really silly i just feel I like think. it's one of those examples of I don't think basically I just don't think the elevator pitch for this idea is actually as simple as you think. Like it's sort of it's 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 as soon as you start talking about it, I think we've ended up down this rabbit hole. You end up sort of these nested edge cases. It reminds me of the great uh Randy Pitchford Battleborn tweet. 
You know, we tried to sort of pitch that game, the kind of hobby grade co-op, uh, reactive esports, semicolon, uh, like, uh, consumer friendly hero action or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. Oh, Pip, wow. Pip has it down pat. Um, um, but he does a very good Randy Pitchford impression. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's that sort of Top like hat, cape, cane, everything. <laughs> Sorry. Go on. Um, but the reason I bring it, it's only because it's like one of those classic examples of like, there was an era where it's like every new game pitch is everything at once and trend mm. chasing and trying to like, no clear sense of what problem it's solving or for whom or why anyone would care. And they all failed, <laughs> like mm. without exception. And that's not a happy thing for people who worked on them by any means, but it was because they, they were not solving a problem for like yeah. anyone specifically right yeah. and i think that's almost like the core thing is like if you're marketing something that is i mean not everything has to solve a problem but like if you're marketing something that is designed to reach a wide audience identify w- the way in which you're going to make life better quickly not like if and then and four weeks from now and if this improves then you will have an experience that you can currently have you hadn't been asking for but well. but it will be faster <laughs> yeah you know what i mean Hey, that's a, that's a, I've seen a good segue mm. oh. from Battleborn mm-hmm. to Dude Huge. Dude Huge? And Lawbreakers. Surely he hasn't been in the news with an ill-advised tweet slash Instagram post. Has he? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are talking obviously of, of, uh, Clifford Blazinski, aka Dude Huge. If you're still in the era of what, 2000? Yeah, something like a that. Game industry. So yeah, I mean, a previous era of folly. Uh, yes, in which PC Gamer lauded him as a gaming god. Uh, so he, <laughs> he was talking about lawbreakers and he was listing some of his regrets, uh, and, uh, analyzing perhaps why it didn't, uh, perform quite as well as he, he would have wished. Um, and he suggested that it was, uh, it was too woke that in fact the game was trying to put forward, uh, political agendas, progressive political agendas that just did not jive with the audience. You just want to escape from games, uh, you escape from, sorry, escape from reality. <laughs> I know, I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> escape from reality and they don't want that SJW stuff shoved down their throats. Um, okay. however, I, I wasn't really aware that there was any politics at all the, involved in Lawbreakers. It seemed like quite a... So quite there a, is, there is some context for this. Like, I, I'm gonna, my role in this drama will be as the, uh, Clifford Blazinski Apologist. Apologist. <laughs> okay. Um, I interviewed him for a postscript about the game after it came out and I, I reviewed it for Edge. Um, and he was so excited about it. It was so heartbreaking that it, it felt so badly. There was, there was, I, re- if I remember right, like a minor kind of Gamergate adjacent, like, like small on the kind of Richter scale of these things, little tumult around the time the game came out because the female characters weren't sexy right so i think he is getting this from something yeah i'm yeah. sure there was a reaction i mean I'm, I'm absolutely sure there was there were vocal elements within their community yeah, but like, i mean that's not why the game no I, I mean i think what has happened is you know emotionally sometimes you just want to attribute a bad thing that happened to the thing that feels right to you and it feels like he's pinning it to that out of a desire that that be the case yeah um rather than anything else um but i mean this doesn't excuse uh, what is a, a very funny Instagram post, but, um, <laughs> but it's, I think that it's not utterly baseless. It's not utterly baseless that some people were annoyed at the game for reasons adjacent to that. Mm. It is still not correct. Well, it's quite, I mean, it's, it's so, um, 
it's so easily proven that it's not correct because um, <laughs> because Apex Legends also has uh you know a really diverse and pointedly unsexy cast mm. uh well they are kind of sexy but in, in a kind of non um uh crass way mm. and that's done really well and uh, it's more or less a game which is you know adjacent slash identical genre uh so that that's not it that's not the reason it's not no <laughs> i can tell you the reason do you know what the reason that um uh, Lawbreakers failed. I may have said this on the podcast already. No, please. No don't. one likes to look up. Seriously. Hmm. I reckon yeah. this is the case. Making a shooter, don't ask players to look up too much. Hmm. I think that's literally it. Jumping, too much jetpacks, too much kind of vertical movement mechanics. Sure. You've, you've lost everyone but the tribes players. Well, all our control schemes are geared towards movement in, in one single plane. Yeah. Really? Really? Um, yeah. Um, you know, a little bit, like maybe, maybe 45 degrees of tilt up, tilt down, but mm. don't ask me to anticipate an incoming laser beam from someone who is almost directly above me and arriving from behind me. Because even I will never Titanfall see doesn't have that much verticality. No, it's the genius of wall running, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a, it's like turns vertical movement into horizontal movement. Yeah. You still <laughs> feel like you're going up. Yeah. Hmm. Poor lawbreakers. It was a good game. It was a really good game. And they yeah. deserved better. I don't know why I made that sound like it was a question. <laughs> I think that, and I think that kind of, you know, I think that the, I can't remember any characters in that game. There wasn't, I can't remember the style. I can't remember the, they look pretty cool. I quite like them. Yeah. No, they weren't, they weren't super, super generic. Okay. Uh, they were, they were sort of Apex Legends level generic where they've taken mm. a couple of different ideas, which are quite well refined and distinctive and then merged them. Yeah. They, they had like, they had the dignity to not like, I don't know, just, hoist ideas from like 2000s dark horse comics um but they didn't have like that many ideas it's that in that which is the same as apex i think is in that sort of territory Hmm. i liked um i think it was lifeline the character i played who was a lady with like like disco laser jet boots that also killed people so Hmm. you used them to propel yourself around and then you could aim them at people's faces which also propelled you backwards i liked that that's okay that's okay a big care bear stare laser beam that kind of came out of her chest Hmm. That was good. I'm definitely, I definitely agree with you, Chris, that a lot of the reaction to it, because whenever Cliff Plazinski says anything, it's always tied to Dude Huge. And, you know, and, and I, th- I think that, yeah, any nuance in the fact that exactly what you said is always lost. I mean, he, he also dropped a little line in there about how he didn't stick to his, his guns mm. basically sort of, uh, with the vision that he had for the game, which sort of yes. offloads the blame onto everybody else. That Wasn't his company, it funny? Which is a little, that's very yeah. true. Yeah. It was very, um, so on one hand, it seemed as you was sort of saying, Chris, that, that, that he wanted this one reason where he looks quite good to be the reason why it failed. Yeah. And then, yeah, at the same time, <laughs> he said it was everyone else's I think fault. So one of the reasons why um, Cliff Blazinski's... Like, he's writing a memoir at the moment. I really hope he finishes it and publishes it. Because oh, yeah. uh, the previous excerpt was also great. And one of the reasons is it's actually super honest. Like, he, he's not very filtered. And, <laughs> and it's... it's I don't know. That doesn't mean it's true. But it's certainly, like, emotionally honest to what he wants it to be. Mm. Right? There's no kind of polish there. It is this sort of, you know, kind of complete sort of um a guileless sort of like you can read that instagram post and i think if you work in the games industry you can read that instagram post and know exactly what 
the boss key company slack was like <laughs> like the, the, you know like a, you know yeah. no no comms person has touched this this is mm. what that slack looks like <laughs> like in that one line about um i think i should have put my foot down more about certain design things there's a universe of meetings that you can <laughs> yeah. i think profoundly visualize like it's, it's like a vr experience you can go swimming in that like it's <laughs> You could probably also go swimming yeah. in the in the kind of anger that his former uh, colleagues had in probably reading it. Oh yeah, like mm. oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I mean, I can only enjoy this remotely at a remove, oh, you yeah. know. But mm. it's still quite like Cliff Blazinski. Oh yeah, yeah but it's yeah, the garlessness. Yeah. It's the it's that open garlessness. Yeah. It's, it's the same guile that kind of had him in a Ferrari and being proud of it. The same guy, in fact, that has him still talking about the fact that he has sex with women. Like, you know, or he's older than me or the same age as me or something. And he's still quite proud to be having sex with women. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's something about that that I find charming, honestly. Like it, when I interviewed him for it, for, uh, it was, I really liked the game and it was nice how, enthusiastic he was about it and it genuinely was painful to watch it then fail because yeah. it was like it wasn't and, and it wasn't sort of bullshit over promisey it's going to take over the world stuff he was just super proud of a game he'd made and yeah. really pleased that he'd gone out on his own he'd done it right like he turned around a good video game and yeah and it's you know we're talking to nexon and we're doing all this stuff and then you know six months later yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. From one industry figurehead to another. Now, <laughs> oh, wow, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Dan Hauser has left Rockstar. He's left the hat house. <laughs> uh, yeah, brilliant. Um, no. Does anybody have any any more no. insights? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting. I, no, I don't the, know. The other I, one is the housest. <laughs> His exfiltrated <laughs> house. Oh. Um, well, the, the standard writing at Rockstar is going to go up that. through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how much uh, influence he had on uh, Red Dead Two, actually, because it's probably the least Rockstar feeling uh, game. I mean, I've said this on the podcast before, but it doesn't feel it doesn't have any of the kind of Rockstar japery. Really, actually, I mean, <laughs> said that oh, almost immediately after I did that podcast where I said this, I then played a mission in which you uh, beat up a, a mentally disabled man for laughs. Yeah. Um, so that was I, on the, yeah, you know, the day after that. I uh, yeah, and that very one, I electrocuted someone to death. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, there was a yeah, quest chain in which oh dear, I electrocuted a criminal. Oh, I didn't do that. I think one. he was a kitty fiddler or something as well. Like classic rock star stuff. It was oh, like. Man. That uh, exact kind of wow. yeah. set but of things. Brass eye, but not the jokes. Yeah. Those yeah. are side missions, though, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't mean to say... Oh, so it's fine. But <laughs> what, I, what I mean is that it's interesting that that material was sidelined, essentially, and put into something which everything I missed, even though I thought I'd done nearly everything in the game. Um, hmm. Yeah, but that, I mean, those, that was uh, the, the only mission which I felt was really... Maybe there were maybe there were like two other uh, conversations which I thought were a bit uh, rock starry, weary sigh kind of reaction from. But um, yeah, it has a lot of writers on that game, and only one Dan Hauser on it. So I don't know <laughs> percentage wise. I don't yeah. know where I'm going with that. It's, it's, <laughs> I think what you've identified is that no one knows what this means. No, because no one really knows what they're working on. Like it's probably like GTA Six, I guess. It yes. makes sense. Um, 
no one knows what that is or what it would mm. be like and what it would be like with or without him or what stage it's at. Mm. So it could be that it's all written and GTA 6 might not come out for three years, but it might be housery as hell when it comes out. Mm. Yeah, I don't think he's been working for a while because he he took a big old, I think it said yeah. something about him having taken a big old holiday for a long time and now he's leaving afterwards. Right. And, you know, also extremely wealthy people sometimes just stop working. Yeah. That would be nice. Mm. I mean, as in, like, retire, not, like, uh, blue screen. Like, <laughs> that'd be better. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good take. Yes. Yeah. Can, can, can you imagine if just, like, I don't know, one day, like, I don't know, Michael Bloomberg or someone just went, like, bunk. <laughs> and just stopped, like, just looking into space. <laughs> Uh, pretty good. A little chuckle for myself there. <laughs> uh, what have you been playing, Chris? I have returned to uh, Star Wars Battlefront 2 because they oh, updated right. it a ton and I was curious. Hmm. Um, so um, I went back. Uh, I don't. I think it was because you know I know some people worked on it and, and they were tweeting about updates and things. I know that it's been getting continuous updates to the multiplayer mode, which I've, I think I've most spoken about on the part of a bunch. Never really liked um, I think single player is fine. Um, and it's such a weird game. It is starting to move in a direction that I had, al- I think it, I wish it had always been in. Um, but it is riddled with weirdness. It has a really big community. One of the other reasons that I played it again was because, um, I have a Instagram account for my miniatures, for like photos of things, you know, models I've painted mm-hmm. and all the algorithm wants to show me is star Wars memes basically. And a lot of those like accounts do like battlefront tips because the game is pretty big like and you know so it'll be like you know sort of clickbaity instagram stuff like here are the star cards to use if you're playing as kylo ren etc that kind of thing and it reminded me that it existed so i went and uh, checked it out um so the headline change and the thing that i'm really pleased that they've done is there's now a mode called supremacy which i think it's been in one form or another for a while um which is functionally a kind of multi-stage um you know, kind of big battlefield type, uh, map where there are two capital ships and a central kind of ground assault area. Teams fight over capture points. If one team wins that stage of the map, they then rush to get to shuttles to invade the other team's capital ship. And then it's a multi-stage, uh, objective capture kind of attack defend sequence, uh, to blow up the opponent's capital ship, which is a perfectly good battlefield type structure. The big difference is they are divided by era. So you have, uh, it's at the moment, it's just either Clone Wars or new movies. And the maps and special characters and hero characters are specific to that era, which might not sound like a big deal, but it makes a big difference to the atmosphere because Battlefront 2, as a default, for whatever reason, I think maybe for mechanical reasons, um, let's, you know, while the maps will be themed to a particular era and that will change the skins of the various character classes that don't change, all of the heroes are available in every era. So you could be playing the Battle of Hoth, but then here comes like General Grievous and Kylo Ren or something like that. And that's fine in a kind of like Star Wars Smash Brothers style kind of hero battle thing, which the game does have. But for me, it has always defeated what I think is the actual purpose of that game, which is that it looks and sounds really, really extraordinary. And it's this big kind of immersive Star Wars battle. So as soon as you treat the fiction or the world as something to just be sort of thrown about from bit you know that that has no inherent value where coherence doesn't have any value i think it loses a lot like it takes me out of it to be in you know 
I don't know, the Clone Wars and then Darth Vader runs around the corner because this is a story at the end of the day. And people, if the people wanted, um, you know, if people were playing this for the game fundamentally, first and foremost, they'd probably be playing Battlefield. They're playing this because they want Star Wars. And it's always felt weird to me that they didn't have modes where you can just play with the stuff that fits in that environment. And the fact that they've done that is really good. It has necessitated. So in the Clone Wars era, it kind of works really well. It's necessarily the, the separatist heroes are General Grievous, Count Dooku and Darth Maul. And on the goody side, it's uh, Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan and Yoda. But are they really good guys? Because from my really? perspective, it's the Jedi that are evil. Indeed. Um, uh, it, they've done, I think they got the voice actor who did Anakin in the cartoons, but he does sound super weird. Which is just very funny. He sounds like he's just—he's like sounds like a teenager putting on a really deep voice, which is maybe appropriate to the character because foreboding, <laughs> <laughs> foreshadowing. Um, but for the um, for the sort of rise of the resistance era, the new movie era, they had to um, expand it a little bit. So um, two heroes came from the base game into this new mode. Uh, on the first order side, you have Captain Phasma and um, Kylo Ren, hmm. and on the uh, on the resistance side, you have Ray and Finn, but they both needed to be joined by new characters. So uh, I'd like you to guess who did they pick to join Ray and Finn? Well, obvious, the obvious choice is Poe, so I assume it isn't. Lando Calrissian. Uh, and who do you think they would join, uh, pick to join uh, Kylo Ren and Phasma on the First Order evil side? Richard E. Grant. <laughs> Just as himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to double down yeah. on that. I agree as well. Well, <laughs> neither of you said um, BB-8 and BB-9E, the evil BB-8. <laughs> oh, really? no. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, how no, does, no. How does playing as them work? Well, if you th- thought it wouldn't, w- it wouldn't work and therefore you'd never do it, you're wrong. Because what it means is there's a untargetable, un- invisible, it- mass electrocuting hell ball <laughs> that bounces around like... Um, oh wow like out of fucking nowhere whatever you're trying to do and then you're dead because uh like i don't know bb9e has like an omni taser that can just chase and murder you wherever you are bb8 you know that one bit in the force awakens where he uses like a little grapple line that he shoots out of himself mm. to think that is turned into like an aoe whip attack <laughs> just fucking <laughs> taking out stormtroopers at the back of the knee i mean he's always been a sort of anti-capitalist hero it's established in um or an anti-fascist hero at least that's established in in the last Jedi where he shoots coins at someone in oh, yeah. the weakest sequence in the film. Uh, but, um, <laughs> which I'm surprised they didn't do as an attack. Yeah. To be honest. They, yeah. um, Anybody's hit by it gets credit. They, they leave their, a lot of uh, stuff account. on the table. He, you can't uh, roll up someone and set them on fire with his little lighter, but he can fucking kill a guy. Like that's something he can definitely do. Um, and so it turns what is already a super weird game into it. That's a, um, it's just a strange experience to be tasered to death by a little ball you never saw <laughs> that you can't, no. you can't see coming oh or like God. you can hear kylo ren coming um partly because the hero characters most of them never shut the fuck up um and they almost don't exclusively talk in lines from the film uh but sort of out of order and in the wrong places which is uh could be just sort of a, a strange experience Drive, driver's gonna adam driver's gonna be a bit of a, a mood killer because yeah. he's just a, he I just sort of I runs, can't do Adam well, Driver. So I'm going to give you the I'm going to give you the relative experience, right? Because getting killed by Kylo Ren, like, and this will frame something. Getting killed by Kylo Ren can be quite an, an exciting experience because uh, you'll be, you know, I don't know, defending a point or something, or trying to support your team, and sort of you'll hear the sort of vroom of a lightsaber, and then you'll hear like, <laughs> um, and um, 
and then you'll be frozen and he'll have, he'll have done his sort of force freeze thing and then he'll chop you up right the equivalent fun the equivalent experience yeah i mean you know it's a it's a light thrill i would say and then um <laughs> the equivalent is you're standing at um uh, a point defending these explosions and things and everything's fucking beeping because it's star wars and then a small uh football sized black object electrocutes you and everyone you know to death <laughs> <laughs> and bounces on its merry way and you can barely tell it was ever there <laughs> hmm. um it's uh that's not the um that's not necessarily a problem because I don't know, battlefront is such a weird game i i play a lot of shooters and i played shooters all my life and battlefront i literally had to google a youtube video to make sure i wasn't just doing shooting wrong <laughs> like i just wanted to watch someone else play it Hmm. To get a sense of what it's supposed to feel like when you shoot a gun. Because, and I've never had to do this in a game before, because the blasters and things feel so slow and so weird. And they, they always yeah. feel like they, they shoot like half a second after you press the trigger. And it doesn't just, it feels, and Battlefront, I think has never been a shooter in that sense, first and foremost, hmm. but it just feels so weird. Maybe that's canon. That explains their terrible aim. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it just feels so strange that I didn't, I, I, but it's so popular that I knew there must be. Yeah. And you're getting killed as well. Yeah. So you're getting killed. Like, I'm dying instantly. Well. I'm yeah. dying instantly all of the time. And not always because a ball has found me, <laughs> but, um, um, and, and, but other people, I shoot them and, uh, it'll look like it hit them, but it didn't hit them. Or I'll get like a damage bloom, but it'll do like a gnat's whisker of health to them. And then they will look at me and then I'll die. And so I had to like, I went and watched a YouTuber who just, just makes Battlefront guides. Not for the tips, although the tips, some of the tips are helpful. Just for what they were doing. Because, and it didn't answer every question. Like, but it did establish that like, it's a game you play in third person. That's just a thing. It's a third person shooter. It's a hundred percent a third person shooter. It does make it a lot easier. So it's not sort of auto aim if you're in third person. No, it's not that. It's because I think it's because a lot of it is about the, the forward roll. You can do a forward roll all the time. <laughs> and, um, because being a ball, very powerful. <laughs> and for a brief moment, you were the ball. Um, <laughs> um, and so a lot of it is doing forward rolls in and out of cover and there's a game there and switching your, using your, your, your recharge abilities when they're off cooldown in the right way. It's fine. It feels real janky. Um, really janky. It's strange to me that, cause Battlefield has really satisfying shooting, I think. Mm. Feels good to shoot a man. I don't know why this doesn't. Really, yeah. really doesn't. It, it also uh, contrasts with the feel of the shooting in the campaign as far yeah, as Yeah, which feels well. fine. Yeah. It's, it's a, I don't, there's something about it that, um, it just doesn't feel right to me at all and never has. Um, that's not a new problem. The, there's a, there's so much weird stuff. There's also the fact that a lot of people who played it have been playing it for years. So they've maxed out every class and things. That's one of the reasons you die really easily. You can unlock sort of permanent big passive bonuses to things characters can do. And that means that you get killed by someone. You see their, uh, hand of star cards pop up, which is essentially the bonuses they've got equipped and they're all at max rank and things. And it's so easy to offset your, why did I die thoughts? Not onto a strategic error that you made, but the fact that the guy's got four, purple upgrades to damage and health increase you know health boosts equipped so maybe that's why you didn't do any damage to them and they did damage to you that's just design crime as far as i'm concerned <laughs> just design crime uh straight to jail um and then um there's some also weirdness i was playing um i've never i've been playing that supremacy mode and in it you do the battle sequence which can take like 20 minutes 25 minutes to win the ground battle and then you go up to the the uh the star destroyer or whatever it is you're invading which is like a 10 minute sequence 
And in my, in my experience of playing it, the attackers always won that. So that would then end the round. Um, I've just, I found out earlier after a really grueling, um, battle, um, that if the, the attackers, I always assumed if the attackers lose that invasion, you know, ship blowing up sequence, the defenders win. They don't. You go and play the ground sequence again. So it becomes this really weird thing. Well, then you thing. push, then if they, if they, if, if the they win, they go in your ship. Right. And it just ends when someone blows up someone else's ship. Huh. But as far as I could tell, this could just go indefinitely. Like there's mm-hmm. no, there's no real tie condition as far as I can tell. Maybe there's a game that just is going, like it's just yeah. never been, never been won. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People um, come in and out of it. The, the Star War. Like <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it was, and I actually quit, not because, you know, normally I see games through, but I quit because like, I've, I've had enough. I've seen all the stages of this battle. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I'm done. And there's still, I don't know, it's such a strange thing. It feels like there's such a good game to be made with its bones. But like even the hero system, so you, you earn points as you play. And then when you respawn, you can choose to spawn instead as uh, a special, either a vehicle, like a walker or something, or a special troop type. Um, so, you know, that guy in, in the Rise of Skywalker who goes, hello, once, um, you can be him if you like, uh, as much as you like, you can cash in 2000 points to be him. But if you have 4,000 points, then that's when you get a chance to be a ball or Ray. <laughs> and, um, and, but the problem is you got to snatch this opportunity when that when they the previous person to be this hero is defeated and so if you don't happen to die at around the same time that they do you're not going to play them yeah. and i've played maybe a couple of hours of it over the course of this week to kind of get back into it i've played as a hero for a substantial amount of time once and that was earlier today when i got to be anakin for a while and that was cool um until i got stuck on a wall and shot to death by battle droids which is <laughs> <laughs> that kind of makes sense though. They, they want they wanted to be mega special they wanted to be you know yeah. extraordinary thing you got to do so this is i think you've identified something which is i think this is a game that children love yes. and i because i think i think there's a there's a benefit to scarcity that you feel really profoundly if you're a kid talking about games in the playground where it's like last night i actually got to be yoda for a bit and i did amazingly i killed everybody and i won even if you're lying um you know fortnite's full of this as well like one-off experiences you know battle royale is kind of the epitome of this it's like battle royale is a game that takes 100 people and makes one of them happy um, in, yeah, but in this one, everybody yeah. gets a turn. But they, they don't, because it's not a turn system. You know what I mean? Like, if you were to design it well, I think players would have like a set number of hero tokens per battle. And once you'd exhausted them, you didn't get to become the hero again. Because mm-hmm. guess what? Guess who is the person who dies closest to a, the hero who dies? The person playing that hero. So if they've got enough points, they just load back in as that hero. Right. It, it's not a good system. It reminds me of plane yeah. camping in Battlefield where people would just wait on the respawn screen to jump into the thing they actually wanted to be doing. Yeah. Like, I, I think you're right that the spectacle of it and the scarcity of certain roles and things is like exciting. I don't think it's good design and it, it still doesn't feel right that like it, it, it turns it into a weirdly sort of, um, sort of this is what's so interesting about it is in that regard, it's a like, you have to treat it as a theme park experience. The levels are beautiful. Um, I still love Star Wars and, and care about my, I like to use it to basically like get a sense of the scale of different space objects for my role playing campaign so that when I describe them to people, I can get it about right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the new resistance. The number level. of BB-8s high. Yeah, exactly. 
the new level for the resistance era stuff has a landed ship in it that i've not seen landed before so i was like oh how big this is and i was like getting a sense of how big it was and where yeah. it possibly land that was interesting to me and possibly only me uh where but you know it has a benefit as a kind of very passive experience which i think is also a um maybe a calculated thing but also part of its utility is you just sort of play it and it you, you i don't think you really try and win it because it's pointless to try uh i think that's what you said um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you just sort of experience the star noises and the, the doings of the toys. The doings of the toys. And, and mm. it's very much that. And that is possibly a, a, an astute bit of, um, uh, you know, bar setting for the mass audience that this yeah. game will reach, maybe unlike others of its kind. The thing I would say about that is it's wild to me that it's taken this long for them to match that. You know, come and play with the heroes you love in the setting you love and don't kind of worry about the game thing with settings that actually make sense like that the base game is still this really weird mishmash where it fights your emotion in it constantly by you know um also having this box of toys mentality where you know the starfighter mode which i quite like is still like this where you'll be doing a uh clone wars era space battle and then poe will show up as an x-wing and it just doesn't feel right or like darth vader will show up on the baddie side so on the wrong side of a war that he did fight in, like <laughs> you know, like yeah. But this, I think, this is your adult brain, yeah, uh, right. I mean, like, well, those when don't sound kids, like yeah, they don't playing, sound like concerns that kids have. Like, I don't I remember know. when you're playing with uh, my, you know, my actual physical toys. My as kid a child. brain was like this as well. You're like, oh well, uh, <laughs> the Thundercats definitely can't turn up in this combat because yeah. it's uh, yeah. really yeah. yeah, they were all in there. He Man, like, Thundercats, everything. I get, I get. They that. weren't even the same scale. See, for me, it stems from like. I don't know, I've spoken about this before, but like, I think there is a view of Star Wars as a collection of iconic things that you cram into a box and a view of Star Wars as a universe that you tell stories in. And what's really interesting is one of those views consistently works and the other one consistently fails, at least critically. Yeah. Like, I just imagine, were you really angry during Toy Story? You're like, those characters would never I, exist in the same I canon. I didn't relate to the, the boy in Toy Story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I didn't, I wasn't angry per se. Mm. Uh, you know, just, it was an alien sort of experience that you would do that. Uh, <laughs> I, had, I had Star Wars toys and like Thunderbirds, I guess, and they never met. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't the right size. Like, it didn't feel like, right. This probably does say more about me than it does about. I think children. it says a lot about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, coherence in world building matters. Damn it. Said I, age six, at my, <laughs> to my friend Christian. <laughs> um, nonetheless, um, I, I do welcome them making some steps towards coherence because I do think that's kind of actually what a lot of the audience wants. Like, mm. I think that, you know, if you look at what Star Wars things are uh, commercially, um, or sorry, at least critically and sort of fan successful at the moment, which aren't, then there's a really clear correlation there. Um, and, and yeah, so ultimately I think it's better than Rise of Skywalker and that's my review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Do you recommend it? No. Okay. So like, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good game. Mm. I like the noises and sounds. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> the doings of the toys. The doings of the Starman. Mm. Yeah. 
Alex, have you been um, doing anything with toys recently? Uh, no, no, no. I, I haven't played an awful lot recently for one reason or another, um, but I have played Increpez, a uh, newish game. Oh, yeah. Try and pronounce that, please, okay, for me. Okay, I'll have a go. I'll put it up on the screen here. Ladies and gentlemen. Schwerkcraft Projections Gerite. Mm. Mm. Solid uh, effort. Which is <laughs> rough, like, uh, which is a gravity project, uh, pro- uh, projector. That's what it translates to. I see. From Germany. German. Gravity projector. Um, it's a puzzly game. Looks like Tetris. Looks but, like, but more hellish. So, more Tetris. Four times Tetris. So it's, yeah, you're playing Tetris, uh, in four different directions at once. So you imagine your piece that you're going to drop is in the middle of the screen and then to the top. And the bottom on the left and the right are four wells. And uh, when you drop the piece, it will fall simultaneously into each of these wells. So any movement uh, in the X and Y uh, axis will be different, make mean different things for each of the wells as it will on the X, the Y the Y axis and the X axis. Will just So basically you've got your L shaped piece. Yeah. It's going to sit nicely in one of them, depending on how you rotate it. It's going to sit well nice in one of your, one of your wells. Mm-hmm. And it's going to sit well nasty in the opposite well. And then it's going to sit nicely in the kind of, in the, you know, it's really hard. <laughs> it's what it is because you're constantly thinking, uh, every choice you make is going to be good for one of the wells and shit for the other one in by and large. And mm. it's so, brain meltingly difficult to figure out kind of you know it out, anything out before you actually drop it you get little preview you know where it's going to drop i should say that you choose when to drop it you get as much time as you like to to move the piece around in the kind of the holding area before you press the button to drop it so oh, right. so you i mean to explain the movement is going to be across the width of the vertical and horizontal uh, the the vertical wells yeah and across the width of the horizontal ones so you've got a square of area right. in which you can move the piece yeah 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 i can see it therefore changing its position in each of the wells huh. but, is, yeah. this, is this interesting though because there's lots of ways you, so you I can thought, make tetris harder and i don't know that they're all so i thought no it probably like on my first go i thought no this is just ridiculously difficult it's really really fucking hard but then I started to notice there was some really interesting stuff going on, actually. Hmm. I don't think I'll really stick with it. I don't think that it's a sort of profoundly deep game. It's a fun little kind of hmm. experiment. So the scoring system is also all. My high score is two. And I believe that's <laughs> that's a perfectly respectable score. Okay. The scoring system is um, you don't get them for each of the lines you clear. Every time you clear a line in one of the wells it's requisite like line clearance number goes up your overall score is the maximum number where the all of the wells have got to so if you have two of the wells having cleared two of the two lines in them and two wells with one line cleared in them in each of them one. your score is one not mm. two so you'll need to, to get two you need to get clear two lines in all of them um but what you tend to find, like, you get this sort of shifting. So right at the very start of the game, like, it's just angst-ridden when you're choosing where to put something because you've got so much choice over where you put stuff. Yeah. You kind of like, oh, God, it's awful there and awful there and good there and good there, but, oh, God, what do I do? 
as you'll know, as, as things get worse, <laughs> but your choices <laughs> actually go down and you kind of like, going, oh, okay, well, this is such a hard game that I'm kind of oh, accept, right. no, accept I can the imagine. fact that it's sort of like I'm making bad decisions. So is your fate kind of set right at the beginning then with your earliest choices? Um, so your fate, so one of the, one of the weird things about, so with, with, with normal Tetris, you, you can move your piece as it's falling, right? So when you get overhangs, you can slip stuff yeah. underneath them so you can correct mistakes or simply correct stuff where you've put stuff down with an overhang. And that's, you know, it's a legitimate kind of strategy. And this one, you can't, when you put it down, it goes donk, 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 and it goes straight down. You don't get any chance to, to jink them. So any gap that you leave at all, and this is actually a freeing thing, any gap that you leave in a line, you're never going to be able to fix it. <laughs> it's fucked. It's fucked forever. But that's actually, I found it quite freeing because mm. you just go, well, like that line's gone. But what I can do is focus on the next line, which is going to be possible. And you start seeing the kind of actually, okay, that one is fucked, <laughs> but I can probably keep it going because it's game over as soon as any part of a block, um, goes over the, you know, the, the line at the top of the, the well. Um, you know, as long as you can sort of keep the game going, you're still in there. So you can kind of go, okay, well, I can squeeze a line there, but things are bad there. So I'll play that one nicely over there. And so it's sort of, it, your pendulum of, of, of care swings between the, the four wells where you're kind of like, okay, now this one I've got to really care about because I can make a line. This one, so in order to get my score up, I really want to make a line. So I'm going to focus on this one and this one I'm about to die. So I'm going to focus on, you know, and so actually it's a game in which your, um, the, the choices you make are always going to be shit somewhere. So it's a game in which you learn where to care about. And that's actually quite a cool little kind of thing to kind mm. of learn through. And I, I really enjoyed it actually for the time I did. And two's a good score. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to go back to it though. I'm, I'm probably going to sort of dabble, you know, put, you know, a few mm. goes a couple of days, but I, you know, I think there's a limit. It's so fucking hard that you're going to like, I don't, I can't really often with puzzle games like this, you can feel the skill ceiling, you know, you mm. see, oh, mm. This one, you know, I just sort of just so chaotic. It's, it's so for someone chaotic. I expect there's some some people that really can pre-figure stuff. Oh, I've got like the shitty. So in this game, the the, the straight four piece uh, at the start of the game is kind of good because you can nestle in or lie down, you know, listen to a side or lie down neatly. But about two or three moves into it, it's a fucking horror because because it lies across the well. Mm. on two of the axes it's gonna in two of the wells it's gonna lie right the way across the well and there's nothing you can do about it and you know unless you've uh but the block the the four you know the block shape the square it's lovely lovely even sturdy dependable rotational symmetry yeah (laughs) beautiful so it's just like all of the pieces take on this sort of different character which often shifts through the game as well tricky t-shape yeah fucking t-shape yeah you get the start of the game and it's the most oh god it's horrible because you've got two you've got to fuck one yeah yeah you're gonna yeah it's really it's it's neat it's neat it's neat another little kind of um neat thing about it is that when when um when you let go of when you sort of commit your piece uh it does a a little bit of bleepy noise as it moves up and then hits hits whatever surface it's going to land on as the as your wells fill the 
get shorter and shorter, giving this more of a greater, greater sense of panic. Hmm. And like, it's just completely just emergent from just the simple idea of just having it go do, 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 as it goes up to the well. It's really neat. Like it does, it sounds really minor. It sounds so minor, but like actually it has this sort of, Oh, Oh God. Oh God. The wells are filled. But yeah, two beat me. No, I challenge you. <laughs> I don't think I will. <laughs> uh, I I'll say, should I say it again? So it's yeah. schwer, craft, projections, gerite. That's pretty good. Do you want to say it sexily? All right. Even sexlier. Schwer, craft, projections, <laughs> gerite. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that well's fucked. <laughs> oh. What have you been doing, Marty? Well, uh, there's, there's two games, um, uh, that were released in this last week or so. Um, not for broadcast, oh, uh, which is a really. I've wanted to know what you think about this. Well, it, uh, <clears throat> so it's a, it's a really interesting looking game, uh, where you seem to be in an alternative 1980s Britain. You seem to have stumbled into the control room for some TV studio and all the TV studio is, is running sort of like inane shows slash propaganda for the government. And you have some way of manipulating those shows. Um, for better or worse. And it's all kind of live, not live, but you know, pre-recorded actual humans rather than CG right. in these, in these videos. And you're switching between channels and, and crafting the narrative that the nation sees. Um, and then there was also, um, Through the Darkest of Times, which, uh, looks like a, a very serious game about, um, uh, resistance during the, the Third Reich in Germany. Um, and I thought for, you know, for no particular reason. It seemed quite apposite at this moment to learn how to resist the onslaught of fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I realised... You need to be a little ball. <laughs> <laughs> and you just roll at their legs and yeah. they can't see you. And then you whip them to death. Well, <laughs> had that option been open, maybe I would have persisted with those games. But I realised that actually I didn't, I didn't really want to learn how to resist fascism. What I wanted to do was be screamed at by a disemboweled horse and then be eaten by dogs in a swamp. Huh. Um, You've so been playing... Hunt Showdown. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, which you've already pretty fulsomely described in a previous episode. Um, but uh, it is a, a just the most kind of febrile hellscape that I've seen rendered in a game and thus a pleasant respite from the <laughs> from today's Britain. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's really, uh. The horse is too tired to scream. <laughs> it's, it's, it's horrible. I really love it. It, and it's, it's so weird. I, 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 uh, I, I love it as much as I do having just had a, a podcast where I said that I'd gone off shooters completely because, mm. uh, during at least one game, I, I killed two men and I shouted, yes, I love killing men. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even tend to say those words. They just bubbled out of me at my id. Beautiful. Um, so yeah, I've really connected, <laughs> uh, with, uh, late 1890s cursed Bayou game, Hunt Showdown. It's got a really interesting history. Do you know the history of, of the game? I know. No, no not really. So it was, it was, um, it was being made by, uh, the studio, uh, which was Crytek USA, which was previously the studio that was, uh, making Darksiders. But then that mm. studio got shut down. Uh, the Darksiders IP got bought up by THQ, I think, oh, or something, yeah. some, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But, uh, anyway, um, uh, after they shut down, uh, one of the Yearly brothers who owns Crytek, uh, decided to snatch the head of that studio up and, and allow them to found Crytek USA, 
whereby then they rehired a lot of the people who are from the dark side of studio and so originally hunt showdown was meant to be um it was, it was called hunt something f- horrors of the gilded age i think it was called and it wasn't actually a multiplayer game it was a well it was it was a co-op uh game set uh in, but a campaign based game uh set in large procedurally generated environments similar theme uh and they were working on that for a number of years and then uh they d- didn't get paid for a while and a lot of the staff left and uh including the the former head of the dark side of studio um and then it was shuttered uh more or less i think it's still there to provide support for CryEngine, but it, otherwise mm. it's not a development studio anymore and so development then switched back to uh crytek homeland and um they turned what assets they had into uh hunt showdown which is a, a great multiplayer game that yeah wow that's, that's huh. wild it's one because it's just a specific game like it yeah. does not feel like I mean, yeah, like, yeah. like Christ, what do we do with all these horse screaming and zombie dog assets? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, well, I was thinking you were going to say like there was one person the champion and they made it in the spare time and blo- all that kind of story. No, but I, I think that is. I mean, that's exactly what happened, right? They they were left with a bunch of assets. They didn't have the the kind of development bandwidth to make it into the full single player slash co op mega adventure that it was going to be so they used some environments from it to to be the foundation for a, a multiplayer okay, game. we've got some really uncomfortably sharp tin cans <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've got lots of guns that look like they would give you tetanus just by looking down Everything the scope of them gives you tetanus. <laughs> or worse yeah yeah um yeah just i mean just to briefly recap what it is mm. uh, it, it is a multiplayer game team-based multiplayer game teams of up to three people you all enter the map you're all kind of grotty looking cowboys basically um and cow people cow people yes indeed it's got a very uh good and uh diverse range of characters that you don't necessarily have entire choice over who you pick because uh, they are basically given to you um and you search the map for clues. These clues uh, tell you where the boss monster is in the map. You go and kill the boss monster as quietly as you can. Um, and then you <laughs> banish... a pillow. Well, it's- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, hammers usually, but, yeah. uh, you know. Um, so, um, uh, because gunshots are very, very loud. Mm. And th- the reason that that's a problem is that every other player and group of players on the map is your enemy and they will come and they will steal the bounties that you've gained from killing this boss and they will escape themselves having left your corpse to sink rotting slowly into the bayou um uh, and it's it creates just a really good range of incredibly different uh multiplayer shooter dramas so there's the the sneaky shh let's not wake the monsters bit where you're sneaking around the swamp trying to kill things as quietly as you can because you know if you fire a single shot then another team will descend on you and fuck you up um and then obviously there's the 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 pv uh e against the boss itself and you know there might be pvp along the way where you hear other gunshots and then you're kind of trying to sneak around trying to get the jump on another team and then as soon as you've killed the boss it turns into a you know assault on precinct 13? 13? Yeah. Sort of, yes. Uh, because there's a hundred, you have to banish the boss. And this is like just a thing that takes a hundred seconds, basically. And as soon as you start doing that, everybody knows where you are. It appears on the map. Uh, and so you need to fortify where you are, basically, and make sure you've locked down all the possible entrances. And, uh, and, uh, and then there's a siege, you know, basically, where you're, there's a big standoff between you and maybe there's multiple teams outside who are all killing each other or indeed choosing not to kill each other so that they can try and kill you. And and then they kill each other.
each other. And then there's usually some kind of hell for leather chase across the uh, the map as you try and pelt towards one of the appointed exits. And then, then maybe then you just get there and get fucked up by some guy who's sitting in the reeds and just pops you through the head as you try and wait for your extraction. And so, but all of these things are so they, they have a very different pace and flavor and level of tension. And uh, it's amazing that the game can juggle all these things in such a coherent way. It's really good. I fucking love it. I haven't stopped thinking about it since I started playing it. Maddening. I just want to play it all the time. Are you consistently playing it with a party? Yes. And that's, uh, I think, what you need to do. It's not the same game by yourself. No, there is a mode where you can play by yourself, but I... Have you tried it at all? Didn't like it, yes. Uh, It's it's sort of like a cut-down version of the Mm. main mode. I I think what purpose a, uh, a sort of solo mode would should serve is to sort of tutorialize you in the game and give you a sort of consequences free go and essentially allow you to play with all the tools and stuff like this but there's a little too much going on in it for that to be possible you still need a level of sort of map awareness to be able to be successful at it Uh, so you're still sort of not you're not hunting down uh, clues i think you're going to different points and you you basically interact with a thing and then you've interacted with four things then a, a wellspring opens and only one of you can be saved and it's it's all a little bit too complicated for like a just onboarding mode yeah and what i really want you know um is to is to have that easy entrance into it where i just like okay what do all these weapons do i want to be able to use these weapons in a way in which only i die and not my entire team uh, because that is too much of a, that's, yeah. I, I don't want to let people down basically mm. in the main mode. Um, but that, that isn't that. And they don't have, what it would just, I mean, it would be better if it, there was just a battle royale mode, like a really bare bones battle royale mode. It wouldn't be very good, but it would be helpful. Yeah. Um, and the main mode is, uh, it's interesting because I, I played it now a lot with, um, uh, Jim Rossignol of, of Big Robot, um, who is a very good hunt daddy. He's shown me <laughs> uh, all the ropes, and he. But he has like he has a, a sort of level of map awareness, which I don't think a new player would gain for yeah. maybe sixty hours. Uh, he, you know, he'll he'll hear a noise which yeah. is completely unidentifiable to me, and be like, "Oh, somebody died at Salter's farm," and you're like what the fuck? And you look at the map and like Salter's farm is like, I don't know, three kilometers away. And you're like, how did he know that that was there? Or that that was what happened. Um, but, but not only does he know that, but he also knows that as a result of that, players will be beginning to move to another location and he should go over here by doing a big loop around the map to, in order to get the drop on them from somewhere else. And that's, that's just a kind of geographic kind of expertise that, is essential in the game, but is just impossible to get without just being in it for hundreds of hours. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and, uh, my other sort of complaint with it in terms of, uh, being a noob is that it's, it's got quite, in other ways, it's quite good for onboarding players because you get free hunters at the beginning. It has a weird sort of escalation sort of uh, earning system where you're, buying new hunters basically with coins even though it's a premium game um but it still has this sort of grind mechanic which i feel is sort of unnecessary and mm. uh as a result it kind of, of that, penalizes bad players really well it pen- yeah it, it penalizes new players mm. uh and 
You get quite a sort of quite a lot of stuff to start with, though, don't you? Right. Or does that run out quite quickly? Well, this is what I'm, I'm getting to. I'm in the squeezed middle currently. Um, so at the beginning of the game, you get a bunch of free characters who um, you don't know how to use really, but I mean, they they will have a lot of uh, they a lot of silenced pistols, and silenced pistols are hugely important in that game because it allows you to take out the many zombies and other monsters that inhabit the uh, level quietly. And that's really important unless you want to be, you know, ganked by, by high level players. Um, but then you reach a certain point and, uh, training mode finishes. I think it's like level 24 mm. or something like this. And suddenly your characters can die permanently. You can't, uh, so anything you've done to level up that character is gone if they, if they perish or you can retire them, uh, for XP, which will help you unlock other things. Um, but. This also means that, uh, the characters that you start, uh, being able to get no longer have that bounty of, of silenced weaponry. And the silenced weaponry is now something that you need to unlock in order to access oh, at a much, much higher level. And you need to start using pistols a great deal in order to get the pistol, which has the silencer. But of course, you're not going to use the pistol because it's not as effective in a lot of combat situations against players as a rifle. And it's really loud. So you're not going to use it in PvE. And so I'm in this weird situation where I feel like I've had a bunch of my toys taken away. And yet I still can't... So I can't go against... I can't go toe-to-toe with the environment. And I can't go toe-to-toe with more experienced players. Uh, Apparently, things will speed up the more uh, XP I earn. and, and, And it's a pretty pretty quick to rank up but at the moment i feel pretty useless because uh especially if i play um with two other people who have really good high level range weaponry because they're going to engage at a range at which i simply can't and so i just stand sort of behind them uh waiting <laughs> <laughs> also um, they're, they're make they're putting you into matches that are with other players that are way above you as well yeah or i mean the, the other choice in that situation is that i then go into a range where I am effective, but I'm going to be on my own mm. without the support of my team. And so there's, it's sort of slightly awkward. I, I wish there was a kind of way that they could massage that. So it, uh, it didn't make me feel like you could I go was, forward. I was shit. They're taking them out of seat. Little do they know someone else is coming in for close range yeah. instead of being taken out. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's me. So I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you. I've seen you. You took out. There was a big extremely chaotic. <laughs> so we played, we played early last week. Um, and there was extremely chaotic battle, uh, in a small copse and mm. me and Jim were dead. You'd been dead, but had been revived and you went on a spree and saved the entire day. It's true. That was complete uh, luck. It's cause I wouldn't have got the headshot on that guy, but I walked over a big branch and it pulled my reticle up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, you know, in in a a few other circumstances that I, I remember really well and will probably, uh, have read out at my funeral. Um, they were, uh, I really acquitted myself incredibly well, killed two guys, uh, with, uh, with lovely headshots once and then killed, killed a guy who was, who was shooting us from a barn and I shouted, I shot him and he didn't shoot me. Dad, I did it. I did. Yeah. I'm daddy. I'm be, daddy. Be proud of me, Jim. <laughs> did I do good? Um, and then I died while hiding under a, under a, uh, uh, oh, what's it called? Uh, one of the things that people sit at. Porches. Veranda. Porches? 
uh, porch. Ele- elevated porch. Is that still Veranda, a porch? porch. Both, both, both are good. The juries, the judges weighed in. Yeah, <laughs> they're both good. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd, uh, I saw Jim getting shot ahead of me, so I scurried under there. And then, um, I, I hadn't been seen by this other hunter who was coming up. I was like, right, I'm going to take him out. Obviously I missed. And then, um, then I died, died in a crawl space, which is <laughs> probably how I deserve to go. Happy birthday. Thanks. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I'm glad I need to, I need to play more of it. Can I'd we like, play it together? I I'd like to. Really yeah. Fun. I'd like to. I haven't played it. I played it last year again, but I was sort of stuck in the single player mode. Tap me up. I'll be there. Oh yeah, hell yeah. We will lose the uh, Jim Ross and your spider sense though. Of, but that's uh, fine. Yeah, we'll be playing sense. lower, lower rank mm. uh, other players. I'd like to get everyone into Mordhau. That's my that's my grim man simulator mm. at the moment of choice. I will I will play that if I you play. Uh, yeah, all right. Play. Yeah, because that's my oh fucking love killing. <laughs> it just feels so nice. Dad, I, I hit him with the hammer. I know. I had a great moment. Ah, oh, it's such a, it, for some reason they've made, they've made murder into big dudes feel fucking incredible mm. in that game. For some reason it was what I wanted to play after 11pm last Thursday. And, um, just go into a room and just get into a fight with a lot of big, bald, sweaty men and, you know, bring me Zweihander. Mm. Anyway, um, the, um, um, there's a great, great moment where I was in the battle royale mode and it was the last two. And I had a decent set of equipment and the guy in front of me had like a huge pavise shield, like this massive shield and a huge pole axe. And he, he'd, he'd set up in this little shed and I, um, I just ran in and I realized I had this, you know, in that moment where you realize you made the right decision, which doesn't happen a lot in game, particularly <laughs> in multiplayer games where you die a lot, yeah. you can die very quickly. You often, your experience is one of like, oh, I've died and I know why, but like the esprit d'escalier of like there was a decision I could have made if I was a better player and I haven't made it yeah and the flip side to that is the moment you know you've gotten better as a player because you then make a correct decision and I put my two-handed sword away and just pulled out a dagger and walked into this sort of like shed area that the guy was occupying he couldn't hit me because his pole axe was too long and I just moved inside his sort of active range and stayed sort of tricky and just knifed him to death slowly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, it, was, it was in full plate armor but uh, you know just you know chipping away <laughs> like um it was fucking great and then later the same day a guy threw a blacksmith hammer at me from really far away and it killed me <laughs> i think yeah. i was going to mention something actually so speaking of um uh you know uh wokeness being the, the death of, of these games is, is claimed hmm. i think the opposite is true i realized something a while ago i think i think when it came out one of the developers of Mordhouse said something kind of dumb about why there aren't female characters in Mordhau. Mm. And uh, rightly, no one bought that at the time. I think it wasn't the, you just can't animate them. How do they move? No one knows mm. thing that people say about women. It was, um, it was it's quote, not realistic or something. It was Symbolic's excuse, whatever, right? They got it completely wrong. I realized what the correct answer would have been. The correct answer would have been Maud Howe doesn't have female characters because it is a parody of men. (laughs) (laughs) Like they would never own the fact that this is a comedy game and that is specifically a parody of men. But I had this realization the other day while I was playing it, I was in this pre-match sequence and everyone was a big topless man with a mustache and they were all doing the pose where you spread your 
arms out wide like you're kind of t-posing and waggling side to side while hammering the v key which just makes you scream wordlessly <laughs> like, Whoa! or like for the king or something and, and then one of them's just going hello 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 and then everyone at one with no kind of real signal started punching and kicking each other and then all fell off the same battlement to their sweaty death <laughs> And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> this is a, this is, this is art, but not the art they thought they were making. <laughs> like 300 in a way. Yeah, but like what that would actually, you know, be like. <laughs> it's very good. I'm sorry for de- derailing from, from Hunt. I've just been thinking about no, it no, a lot. Was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, uh, because Tarkov as well uh, mm. had the had the same uh, yeah. reasoning, you know, resources reasoning by why they hadn't include uh, female avatars. Um, but Hunt is the counterpoint because well, I think it launched actually without female avatars, and then they they added them uh, later. Because you you just you can do that. You can you yeah, can you can just yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, no. Although you know I, I'm never one to dismiss claims about devs' willingness to commit resources to something that won't necessarily impact sales wise because right. they are businesses as well and they need to survive. Um, but at the same time, these excuses seem quite fatuous think, to me. Yeah, all of these. I think what that decision has meant is that a lot of these games have the vibe of like a particularly hardcore stag weekend that no one's having a great time on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Mortau yeah. is the we're going to go do a reenactment stag weekend, and three people are going to take it too seriously, <laughs> and they're going to hurt each other, and one other person who wasn't involved. Um, and whereas then you have the uh, the classic kind of PUBG paintball weekend mm. gone astray. You also have, I guess, the Hunt Showdown pub, the paintball weekend gone really astray. <laughs> like, someone's like fighting a huge spider in a youth hostel somewhere in Wales. <laughs> um, yeah, you've got the. Just wanted to do Laser Quest. You've got the Tarkov, like, we've all been to, we've all got new camping gear, but no one knows how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> we've had one trip to Black's. And no one needs to own this many mag lights. <laughs> we got to the camping ground after dark, um, and no one's got a torch. Lads, lads, lads. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not necessarily a good thing, but it is a mood. Yeah, that's how I feel about games. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like? Uh, what is it? Time? <laughs> what shall we do? Uh-huh. Some from maybe? Uh, well. <laughs> Go on. Question from questions, yes? I mm. wouldn't say no. <laughs> okay, you've persuaded me, guys. Uh, Aiden writes, Dear Creative Fubar, as a rosy-cheeked child, I played and loved Final Fantasy VII. Early in the game, I was given the option to name my hero. The default name was Cloud. A bit odd, but fine. But what if there were several other characters, I thought? Ones with the same name. I need to differentiate my spiky-haired hero somehow. So I settled on changing my name slightly. Instead of Cloud, my buster sword-wielding champion would be called Cloud One. Cloud. And then the numeral One. <laughs> Help me explain this. <laughs> Why I did this, I'm not sure, but I spent 50 hours with this name and I'm standing by it. Do you have any odd character naming habits or stories? All the best, Aiden. Oh, I played Persona 4 and I didn't like that I called my uh, character Roto Potato 
because you have to think up a fucking surname as well. I did not like the name Roto Potato. <laughs> I think half a second after I pressed OK, and I persevered with it. It's early enough to start again. You're allowed to start again. <laughs> there must again. have been a reason I didn't. Because maybe there's a big preamble. I think there maybe that is a game of long kind of sequences before you mm. can do stuff. I think there's a long preamble. I can face doing now. it again. Roto Potato it is. <laughs> so I bloody-mindedly called myself Roto Potato in uh, Persona 5, only to punish myself. It appears. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think the only really funny answers to this because I take this very seriously and it takes me a long time. Um, uh, What's yeah. your Battlefront name? Uh, it's, well, it's my EA origin oh. username, isn't it? Darth. Take this seriously, children. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deep and rich law, actually. Um, uh, no, so uh, I... I think when I was a kid, I used to just, if it has like, what's your name? I'd just go, Chris. Um, oh. so like my Final Fantasy VII was as Chris. And, and basically my, all my Legends of Zelda's were starring Chris. And so that, <laughs> you know, and then I learned, cause I think uh, as a child, it was very much like, I would like to be, I'd like to live inside the video game. And this is the fastest way for me to access that. Hmm. And then it was a mark of something resembling maturity, which is a stone to throw in this glass house, <laughs> this, sugar glass shatterable expanse that we reside in to then grow into i'm going to create a character and role play as them and they won't be me but they really are (laughs) 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 um i think nowadays if if a character if a lead character has a name already i probably won't change it now because i it annoys me afterwards when I've done that, and it's obvious that the game wishes I was called the thing that they decided the character would be called. Oh, yeah. I had this with Fire Emblem Three Houses, where your name is bleh, but that's what they set for you. So, Is it? It's mm. Blyeth, but I'm not sure how you'd have to say that. Yeah. The default mm. lead character's name is Blyeth, Blyth, mm. Blyth, mm. Blyth, Blyth, <laughs> Blyth, Yeah, so I can never sort of hear it when characters are saying it to me. Does that make sense? Mm. I mean, that's because it's not, it's not, that name isn't voice acted, so... People was like, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I always name my um, pets in any game uh, Pokey after Pokey the Cat in The Incredible Machine, which is a game that came out oh, many, gosh. many, many years ago. Yeah. But weirdly, uh, it turns out uh, when uh, my former uh, housemate and colleague uh, Owen Hill discovered that I called my cat in, I think Guild Wars 1, Pokey, he's like, that's what I call my girlfriend. <laughs> Oh, God. That's my nickname for my girlfriend. And so it became really weird. Um, yeah. I still do it. Now his wife. Pokey, or the Pokester Hill. Well, she does. Jones. Well, Jones, yeah, yeah. He changed his yeah. name weirdly. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Mark writes, hello. You're just... Sorry? No, I was just saying hi to Mark. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, your discussion on the last pod about adapting to gamepad from keyboard reminded me of a freebie attached to a gaming magazine sometime in the 90s. Essentially a little plastic box with a stick on top, uh, which you put over the arrow keys to turn it into a joystick. Something like the attached pick, which I will include in the show notes. It was predictably terrible. Um, Given your time in the gaming press, you've probably received more than your fair share of small gizmos over the years. What are the best and worst of these? Are there any that were surprisingly useful that you continue to use? Thanks for the pods. Mark. What was the 
3D controller. Was it the Falcon? The one that looked like like the machine in Dune that you put your hand in to prove that you're the Quidditch Hatterack. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it was like, uh, it, I can't remember what it was called now, but it's, 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 it's like, as far as I'm aware, it's stuck around trade shows. It's like one day we'll find out what this is for. Like, yeah, it's like a haptic feedback ball, right? Yeah, but it, you, you were inside the ball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The ideal controller for BB-8 and BB-9E. <laughs> Throw it at your friends. It's the same experience. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, I think the idea was that it was like you, you could move the cursor in 3D space rather than across a 2D plane. Yeah, yeah. It had depth. Uh, which I think maybe had subsequently had some utility for carving for 3D printing. It was kind of, it was pretty cool actually. Yeah. For the time. It I was don't a want cool to shame technology, but it shame was it, ultimately it's like, pointless. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Darwinian dead end. There was really. no reason for there to be one in the PC game office. You know what I mean? No. Like it was like the perfect home world controller or something. Like, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I recall, I, you have to admire the brazen balls of trying to take this product to market, but for the famously peripheralless, uh, connect, somebody <laughs> made a peripheral, uh, for a rafting game, which was a rubber dinghy. <laughs> it's just a dinghy. You blew it up. It's sad, isn't it? How is it? Didn't have any other kind of connection to the digital world. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like if you, um, if you if you got like a special peripheral for 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 lawbreakers, which was to enhance the game experience, if you thought it wasn't woke enough, and it was just a little hat that said dipshit on it, <laughs> sell a thousand of them. <laughs> yeah, one for every person who bought the game. It was always I remember a lot of the um, I don't want to say downscale magazines. The downscale magazines. <laughs> it's all right. You work. You both worked for Edge. You can be snobby. Uh, were obliged uh, by the publishers, not the staff, who are obviously respectable human beings, but by the publishers to uh, include uh, uh, tat, basically, in a mm. bag on top of the magazine itself. <laughs> I remember a lot of those items were uh, slightly suspect. You know, glow-in-the-dark skins for the wee one that may have been toxic, that kind yeah. of thing. You know? <laughs> the kind of, yeah, sort of, um, yeah. There, I've just remembered that there is one tat thing that, that was magazine-related that do does still get used which was some ps4 uh pad kind of sort of things you covers you put over the pads the sticks oh, yeah yeah and it's kind of got knobbly bits on it which apparently enhances your grip mm. they, we put them on a controller because the rubbery bits on the controller wore off Gosh. and it made it good as new well yeah. wasn't it's not good as new it's bad but it's better than it was there were ways to adapt the really spongy triggers of like the ps2 controller did, to, to be yeah. more like a 360 controller these kind of like appendages that you'd fit onto them. yeah that that was a, like a prime kind of um, cover mount thing wasn't it that kind of shit because yeah. it's just a piece of plastic mm. i actually think i i remember this uh this uh abomination in question that the the that um mark writes about i think i think i mean like I feel like my PC format or something came with, yeah, came with it sounds way back when. Because I, I remember, I have a distinct, as soon as I saw that picture of it, I was like, oh, I remember using that briefly, realizing I needed to throw it away <laughs> two seconds later. <laughs> yeah, thinking this will, this will change everything when you were yeah. a news agent. It didn't. It didn't change anything. Sam writes, dear crate and crow bar stewards, you humble folks rarely, if ever, use your platform to talk about your other work. What are you working on and how should we consume it? Sam. I don't want to be consumed, but I'm very happy to talk about stuff <laughs> I do. You should. You've got some cool things at yeah. the moment. 
yeah. Got a cool book. What do I do? I I write stuff mostly, don't I? Yeah. Um, so I had a book, <laughs> what come out? Um, well, it sort of it came out in a sort of it came out. <laughs> it came out just before Christmas. <laughs> you sound really excited about well, it. Well, it so. It's funny. Like it never had a launch date. So this mm. is it's a book called uh, Japan Soft and All History. Um, it's published by. Um, a, a small publisher called Read Only Memory, who make very, very nicely made books um, about game history, mostly beautifully designed, kind of beautifully printed, lovely paper. Hmm. They are properly, wonderfully made things. Uh, and I have written two of them. Um, hmm. First one being Britsoft and Aura History, which is based on um, a set of interviews with uh, that were conducted for a TV a film documentary. Um, and then I kind of got all of that text, uh, sort of all of the transcripts from it, made some new interviews and then chopped it together into an oral history book. And Japansoft is much the same, um, a set of interviews made by, um, a journalist called, uh, John. And I don't know how to pronounce his surname, it begins with S because I only ever write it. Um, uh, but it, uh, he did a series, he, he kickstarted a series of books. Um, based on these interviews, but he never had the resources to finish them all off. And so he sold the transcripts to read only me and they asked me to chop it together, properly edit it into a single book. And that came out just before Christmas. But like I said, there was no proper, uh, launch date for it because it came out when the printer finally finished work on it. Right. And, um, that's available through the read only website. And cool. I'm really proud of it. It was really hard really hard work project because it was so Britsoft was with a bunch of big game designers from the 80s um David Braben um uh the the people that I've forgotten all the names of because it's because my brain's old <laughs> but 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 sort of American European British people talk about their work in a different way to Japanese people I think you know that mm. they speak much more freely and openly and the interview with the interviews in the, the Japanese book are much more choppy much less likely just to go off on kind of nice monologues that I can work with and sort of beautifully fashion and kind of mm. you know have fun with um, I had to chop and change a lot of stuff to make coherent sort of uh, sort of pieces that felt like they were um you know, said in one block because it's not fun to read them when they're as choppy as they actually were spoken. So this, you know, it was a project about taking liberties, but making them feel um, authentic and be completely respectful to what they were saying as well. Mm. And of course that's from not ever seeing the original text because, you know, I don't speak Japanese. And so, you know, hoping as well, you know, that it's all kosher. Um, and you know, and also reading stuff into it where things like, I don't quite believe what this person's saying and then finding a counterpoint and sort of putting that next to it. So, you know, so it's a, so I'm really proud of it because I think I just about balanced it. Hmm. The, the reviews are trickling out now and there's a nice one in Nintendo Life and. Oh, cool. That's cool. That's cool. So, um, there's that. Uh, so I'm now thinking about a couple of more books for this year. There might be a US soft. So do mm. American one that might happen this year. Um, and some, oh, then like, like there's going to be a book about computer design, like physical design of computers. It's mm. going to be for Thames and Hudson. It's coming out this year. 
And that is sort of that's. Hang on, what do you mean, like the industrial shape? Industrial design of computers, right. but like it's a history come like beautiful photograph mm-hmm. of photographs of um, a lot of beige things, mm. loads of beige, and like we wanted specifically for, to show the blemishes of age on these machines. So look, they're, yeah. they're really nice, really lovely photography, and then like my pieces are like a three or four hundred word piece about that computer, and then it's history. And like, I'd never heard of most of the computers when I was, you know, before I wrote it and like drawing together these kind of stories through the, through all of the, the companies as they kind of waxed and waned. Like the eighties was a crazy time for companies coming and going, like mm. in the matter of a year or two, mm. sort of names that you still, rem- that are relatively familiar today, but very short histories, you know, and that's in games as well as computers, like, the Britsoft and Japansoft like really speak to a really dynamic, re- terrible, like incredibly um, uh, tumultuous time, hmm. you know, for wherever you are, like in Britain or, or Japan. So it's, I really enjoy doing that stuff because I, I often don't know this as as much, you know, I, I often go in quite blind, really, knowing enough to know what the subject is. But then I find it fascinating, actually, kind of you find... Uh, like personal dramas and things like in the uh, there was a, a Hong Kong based company that made more or less knockoffs of um, of uh, one of the American computers um, oh, the the Coco the it was like a I call it really early 8-bit color computer and they made sort of knockoffs because it were used sort of off-the-shelf components and um, this person had been born in China and basically just managed to get over the border into Tokyo, made up this company. Yeah, uh, Hong Kong or Tokyo? Uh, sorry, yeah, sorry. In uh, uh, Hong Kong, sort of managed to go over the border and then made up this company, um, had European subsidiary eventually, and um, but then dabbled in the Hong Kong um, property market. And little did all of his employees know that he basically bankrupted the company. <laughs> and just after they launched wow. the computer, they discovered that the company was no more. And there's this sort of legend that goes along that, that he was last seen leaving a hotel with a great big sack full of full of notes that he'd managed to kind of <laughs> put together and, and oh running up into the night. I like, yeah, it's like sort of dramatic stories like that. Anyway, that I will say more about that when the release date comes, which I think is in springtime, I think. Hmm. Cool. And then what I, oh, I also worked for Mojang. Yeah. Doing, doing Marty's old job, basically. Bits of it, yeah. Bits of it, yeah. yeah. But I, yeah, I'm a publishing editor, which means that I work with all of their publishing people. Um, so they work with partners like Egmont, a children's book publisher, and Random House, and Penguin, and things. And they want to make books about Minecraft, and I make sure that they are good, and they have good stories, or they are correct, and they are good quality and worth buying. You're looking at me. I am looking at you. Uh, I'm fully out of media now. I help make video games for a living. So, um, yeah, my, I mean, my career has changed dramatically. I don't talk about it purposefully, um, but I am just sort of fully into production and design and writing uh, and comms now. Um, in terms of ways people can get at that stuff, the uh, the the game that I've worked on that is out is Hack Mud, which is um, still going strong um that's on steam it is a text-based hacking simulator mmo very uh steep learning curve like you know it was steep learning curve for me and i uh, you know wrote a ton of it um 
but lovely community do join the discord if you do decide to play it um other than that like you know this 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 podcast and its spin-offs is my kind of media output now so yeah how about you Marto? uh i don't produce anything in a consumable form um <laughs> uh I, I can't say what i'm working on at the moment um but i was working at moyang doing lots of word based things and worked on Minecraft and Minecraft Dungeons as well, mm. which is now announced, which is nice. Um, I don't know if what I did on Minecraft Dungeons has really survived, but we'll see. Um, and I also worked on uh, Minecraft Story Mode as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, and other things that uh, are Mojang that have yet to be announced, which are cool. Cool. Benjamin writes, High consoles and quadrilateral cowboys. An update on the demise of Netrunner. It's been about 16 months since the last FFG product was sold and a little less than two years since they announced the end of the game. The community all suspected that it was due to conflict with Wizards of the Coast and FFG over the pieces that were licensed and possibly a souring relationship between the two companies overall. But a fan organisation called Nisai has been developing new sets and running tournaments quite successfully. In a sense, it's like Black Mesa, but for Netrunner. So, relatedly, what's your favourite fan project or mod turned full game experience? Benjamin. Well, that's a good kind of uh, correct. I'm glad to hear that Netrunner's doing well because, as I said, it's the among the best of its kind. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and I had heard that same theory as well that uh, the the context there is that Netrunner is based on the Android license, which is a Wizards of the Coast thing. And there was a period of time where basically Wizards of the Coast Fantasy Flight and Games Workshop were all kind of mutually not struggling, but Certainly bimbling rather than, you know, running. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were kind of how, happy. How fast is a bimble? Is it slower than a jog, but Depends faster on the than a walk? Mood. Or is it worse than a walk? You can have a happy bimble, which is quite quick, but a slow bimble, mm. a sad bimble. Right. That's pretty slow. <laughs> and I think this was a sort of, um, I feel nothing emoji type kind of bimble. Anyway, oh, yeah. um, that's my industrial analysis in the tabletop games <laughs> industry. Um, but there was a period of time when they were happy to share IP with each other. So, for example, the Warhammer 40,000 Conquest game that FFG produced, um, FFG had a bunch of Wizards of the Coast licenses and things, and it was kind of all moving around. I think because mutual kind of product development and exposure could only help. And then as soon as all three of those companies suddenly kind of profited massively from the tabletop boom, um, there was a snatching back of uh, licenses. But it also, uh, I think, still underlines the fact that if like the best game in that space doesn't get ongoing support, then that's weird in terms of fan projects done good i mean in the break you handed this to me that this dota is this <laughs> yeah. um so i guess that's i guess that's my answer I, like, I, i'm reaching for something kind of um i guess different to that but honestly i can't think of yeah, much i don't know if I'm really counting anything like that counter-strike I, I remember that when it was a mod yeah and at the time i was a, a really shit Skinner, as they were called, somebody who, at that time, skinning meant making textures, uh, for models rather than applying, uh, animations to them or, or setting them up for animations. Um, and I was in the modding scene, uh, looking to do something for, for a game. I saw Counter-Strike. I was like, mm, no, that'll never make it. I'll do. <laughs> and I, I put my, uh, put my efforts behind. I can't remember who it was now. I think it was a game. Frontline Force. I'm going to make guesses. Well, <laughs> it, it Ricochet. was. Ricochet. 
it was a it was a, a counter terrorism okay. based mod for I think Unreal at the time that I was mm. I, I was into. Mm. Um, and uh, that one did not become a global success. So yeah. <laughs> Probably because of my terrible skins. <laughs> Doomed it failure. I had a period of time as a amateur skinner as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, I used to make skins for AVP. Oh. Yeah. Um and one of them was really, really successful and that's like Was it a really horny one? No. <laughs> yeah. My I horny AVP mods. The best um the best email I ever got as a teenager, pretty much I was like fifteen. Um this is back in the day, i.e. the 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 like early noughties, where you may still have a whole family email address. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like we've got one AOL connection, so the whole family shares it type mm-hmm. thing. And I remember this really vividly. I got an email about because they all enjoy like my skins had names like Jungle Pharaoh Predator <laughs> <laughs> and like you know uh, I don't know like Blood Runner. Like it was it was the Runner Alien. But it was made of blood now. I made it red, essentially. <laughs> um, and, um, I got this email that was from the whole Thompson clan. And it was like a whole family emailed me wow. to say how much as a family. And it was like, it was like an American family, like mum, dad, the kids emailed me from somewhere in middle America to tell me how much they enjoyed Jungle Pharaoh Predator. <laughs> oh. And I remember really vividly because it was like the only like, like you never get a comment, right? Like you, you, you look, you know, yeah, that's weird. Maybe that's, that's an interesting spin-off. Like, yeah, mm. I've had three really successful mods in my life, inexplicably. Oh, yeah. so Jungle uh, Pharaoh. Predator. Predator. You probably wouldn't find it now because it was hosted on like Geocities or something <laughs> or like Angel Fire. Um, Geocities all been, well, not When I was 13, I made a, I made, I think it was the second or it was, it was close. It was definitely in the top. It was definitely among the first five publicly available alternative black and white multiplayer maps. Um, I made a map called Gold Rush, which was just a big hill that had loads of gold in the middle of it. Um, predating the Battle Royale uh, genre by, <laughs> by 20 odd years. Yeah. Um, uh, and that was like top of file planet for black and white for ages because there was nothing else. It's good. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I don't know how I got onto that, but that's my, uh, modding story. That's good. I wish I had a modding story. I ain't got nothing. Well, well. <laughs> uh, can I have some more drunky man fallback mm. juice? That's where I get calling it that from. Must no, be I, you. No, I thought I called it that because it was your phrase for it. Oh, I still don't know where I get that from. <laughs> what did you call it? Donkey man? Drunky man fall down juice. Drunky man's fall down juice. Or Captain Morgan. That's a lot. I've given you a lot. (laughs) Excellent. Well, this outro is going to go well. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Splashy. Yeah, good. Thank you very much. Splish splosh. Maybe I got that from you. And then later in my life, I'll go back in time and whisper it to you. As a baby. And create (laughs) paradox. It's an idea that comes from nowhere. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I assume, because I, I can't remember when I first said it. This must be one of those things that was sort of generated when we lived together, I suspect. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> These things just, they, they don't, they just grow like a, a mold, basically. <laughs> <laughs> like when we lived together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David writes, Hi all, I was thinking about the oft-mentioned Big Town and its problems while listening to the latest pod. I was wondering if the issue could be alleviated somewhat through abstraction. After all, things are abstracted already with the average big town being approximately equal to one bath 
by your reckoning. This question won't make any sense to anybody here who's tuned into this podcast for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Big Ten. I'm going to make no attempt to explain it. Um, <laughs> rather than being filled with screens full of NPCs to talk to and doors that mostly remain shut, what if Big Town were explored through a series of vignettes or set spaces that you could quickly travel between? They could be fixed, drawn randomly from a pool, or even be based on aspects of your character and things you've done so far. How would you solve Big Town? Take the, care, David. The the system that uh, is described there is kind of similar to 80 Days and the way that you encounter a node in that, where you kind of, the, the things mm. you come in with and the circumstances in which you encounter it, mm. even though a lot of things are possible, your kind of exit is going to happen. So you kind of accept that you're going to do a finite number of things. Like, so to, I will attempt to, if you're going to try and solve it, you need to kind of unpack what it is. And the big town problem is the anxiety that comes with having suddenly a lot of content to do in a lot of different directions and not knowing what's important. Also, well, you, actually, you don't know, you, it's really easy to tell a player what's important because you make it a different color in the quest yeah, journal. But that creates a different kind of anxiety where you're torn between something that's actually pressing and all of the other content, which you could do without time sensitivity, but maybe you shouldn't because yeah. there's a more important thing, but is it going to be accessible later? Lots of, lots of information as well. Yeah. Like this is the history of Big Town and this is what you need to know about what happened here in two, two centuries ago. And yeah. is, hmm. maybe I should become a vampire now. I don't know. Yeah. Every, every kind of player is Big able town. to be, there's something in Big Town, there's something to paralyze everyone. And, um, <laughs> you know, you might be the sort of, uh, sort of progress minded or kind of power minded player that doesn't know which quests are going to provide the most efficient progress because you're enjoying leveling up and that's what you want to do. It can be the law minded player who feels paralyzed by this is where I find myself the problem of, um, wanting to know all of the exposition, but also kind of wanting to be told the story and therefore receive it in a naturalistic way because it is not fun to be told to read the wiki entry for a town yeah. where you can then continue to have adventures there. Um, and, and then, you know, it's, it's all, I think, I think, you know, the, you know, things like 80 days, or I would say, um, any game derived from fall in London, it's on the sea and skies, solve this somewhat through a series of systems, but mostly by making your passage through a given area feel, um, sort of transient and passing mm. in some way by taking away the notion that you can complete something. Mm. Like one of the interesting things about Fallen London is, or, or, um, some the sea or some of the skies now is you go to a new place and half of the options are red because you don't have, or blocked off to you because you don't have the staff. And there's a light, you know, um, there's a light, uh, big townishness to that because it shows you that there's so many different pathways. It gives you a glimpse of the size of the thing. And I think it's important. It is important to show players that there is some depth here, but it's something that I've observed in working in games that, um, particular, like players will always assume that the possibility space is bigger than it actually is. And I'm actually rambling off topic there a little bit, but the, the point is that you have, so you have to, show, you have to tease the size of things to have the sense of scale and the sense of depth. The good thing about those games is they structure your resource acquisition and the things that gates that content in a way that, um, means that you know that you're only ever going to have a certain amount to invest and therefore you're going to have to make a choice and that choice is probably going to be somewhat final and that i think helps get rid of the anxiety of feeling like you must do everything does that make sense particularly in those games where death is semi-permanent and you kind of get reset and things you know you were doing like in 80 days you know you're doing a run 
not trying to rinse the world of all its content. Hmm. And I think that's a good, uh, that, that's an interesting solution because if you incorporate it in a tight way into your game design, then you can approach a solution to the big town paralysis. But it's useful because it's functionally just about instilling a particular mindset. And that mindset is how you get over it as a player. Because you can apply that mindset to Divinity or Baldur's Gate or any game that has this issue by just saying, like, I'm just going to do what I feel like doing. And I'm going to assign priority based on what I think is important. And I'm going to get the experience I get from doing that. Um, but I think it is still a design. Like, it, like it, yeah. still the, it does still need to work. It shouldn't way, punish you, know, you for doing that. Certainly. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. I think that, that Baldur's Gate, I think, probably would because you wouldn't have bought the right gear in the shop because... Right. Blah, 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 it's, blah, a, blah. it's an interesting issue, like, and something I'm thinking a lot at the moment from a lot, from a design point of view, because you, I think you want to encourage players to explore the breadth of the content that has been created for them, or else you're getting a less return on the investment that went into creating that content in the first place. This is talking specifically about problems in an open world game or an open where players have a lot of freedom. Um, but you don't want to make the moments where players are encouraged. Well, so there's two things. There's the moment when they realize what the breadth is and there is the moment where they have to, have to engage with it. And that's why it's big town. Big town is the moment when you realize how big everything is and you realize that you probably have to do something about it. And the, one of the issues of that presentation, we're kind of riffing on the, the classic RPG thing. If you finish the tutorial and then you arrive at the big city kind of moment, is it bombards you with both of those things at the same time. You realize, oh shit, this game is actually huge. And I might be enjoying the story and liking the characters that I've met so far, but actually there's tons to this. And it encounters at the same time as all of this stuff is sort of presented to me and it's weighted very similarly to the content that I've already uh, received. I think so, so I, yeah. I think to contextualize that I'd say that it's a it's kind of primarily an issue with pacing so often mm. like in those RPGs like you start off and most of the, the actual kind of the nitty-gritty of the play is quite linear like you're going through a dungeon or you're going along a specific course and then suddenly you get to this like open-ended place and you've just been in this mindset of okay to progress I just go from left to right and then suddenly oh it's all around me because i think that you can play something like disco elysium which is set mm. in a town or the city already and you can go anywhere you like and and it doesn't feel big towny because you're from the very moment the, the, the moment you wake up you know that well you can just go over there and you can talk to people and you can feel your way organically through it and you could probably do that in boulders gate in the, that first town but actually you know, it's the pace change that's probably the mm. root of the problem yes. with that situation. I think the other thing is it's actually fine um, to – maybe one way to think about it is it is a pacing thing, but pacing is an interesting concept when you're talking about uh, a game where the player directs mm. the pace with which they proceed because you don't have the pace control that you would have in a linear game. Um, and I think the mistake that – uh, traditionally like CRPGs make is it's actually interesting. It's like, wow is responsible for this. I think weirdly world of Warcraft has something to answer for when it comes to the big town problem, because Warcraft's big innovation, one of them, many of them was quest markers, exclamation mm, markers, yeah. which was a way of indicating there's content here. Um, there's content here. Come and get it. And it worked in WoW because WoW's kind of genius was to take quest lines, which in EverQuest could be, you know, 
endlessly branching kind of very opaque multi-stage things that you excavated from dialogue trees where you were typing in the keywords manually to see what the npcs would respond to fundamentally stuff that came from mud logic where stuff is hidden as in multi-user dungeon logic where stuff is hidden and it's kind of organic and weird and a quest line is half easter egg half content and whilst the data said, no, this this needs to be like a tweet length quest description, a shopping list, and then a reward that you're shown at the beginning. <laughs> and we you're you're gonna and you are gonna want these because we're gonna take this and we're gonna turn it into ten minutes and a reward, and you're gonna feel good about that. And you're gonna feel so good about it, you're gonna wanna do twenty of them at once. And you're gonna wanna be able to grab them as quickly as possible, and then you're gonna wanna look at your journal and figure out how to crack them all at the same time. And the kind of organic, weird, kind of wonky role play, talk to the people you want to talk to approach becomes a game of project management and, uh, you know, task, uh, sort of curation where you want to be able to see all the quest markers at the same time. You don't get the big problem, big town problem in WoW because the quest markers tell the you, quest marker. they, and they tell you this one's too low level for you. It's silver or whatever the coloring is. This one is too high level for you. It's not appeared yet. Everything, if it's gold, click on it and it's, it's not going to be an overwhelming task because you have been trained that this is the cadence of it. It's not going to require you to do much reading. It's just going to spit you out into the world. And you're going to come back in half an hour and feel good. And that uh, logic got inherited into a lot of the CRPGs that followed because it feels good to have a clear task list and so on. The problem with it is it doesn't, I don't think it copes well with the weight of storytelling and complexity and, a variable length of time that mm. single player RPGs tend to have associated with any given quest. And so the answer, I think, and this is interesting because this is kind of how Disco Elysium solves it, I think, is to say, you hit to do one thing. And if you happen to go to this shop and talk to someone and end up fucking around in there and doing what is functionally a quest and you get some quote unquote reward for doing that, we'll never tell you that what you just did was a quest. Yeah. We're literally just never going to tell you that was what you just did. Um, and you will never see this itemized. Imagine if you load into that first area in Disco Elysium on day one and it, I just, if you added quest markers or like there's yeah, a potential, yeah. like imagine adding there's a potential reward here markers to mm. NPCs in Disco Elysium. It becomes nightmare. Like it literally becomes the worst. Yeah. It would you'll kill get paralyzed. It Right, yeah, you you suddenly have the big time problem. So maybe that's the solution. Just like teach players the logic of sometimes if you talk to people, they will have a task for you to do, and then tell them to do exactly one thing mm. with maybe one optional thing. Yeah. Get out of Big Town, okay? Yeah. I'll talk to the people in Big Town. It's also so like uh, expanding contract thing that Disco Elysium does, and like actually uh, Red Dead Redemption Two does, and most of Rockstar games to some extent where there are uh, a set number of missions that you can complete. In Disco Elysium, for example, it's day-based. So there's only certain missions that are available to you on a single day, and then they can easily push off content to another day so that you don't get overwhelmed in one go. And Rockstar deal with that in Red Dead Redemption by having, say, there's, you know, five different mission markers you can do, and they all separately are different missions, but they do feed back into a single funnel point that then unlocks the next stage of the narrative bubble of stuff and then it it, yeah bubbles up again and opens a new set of uh options and i i I think i think the i think you're exactly right in saying that big town is like is a problem with 
the way that games have been structured rather than uh, a problem with like op- just the open world being being overwhelmed in general like mm-hmm. it is it is d- down to almost the taxonomy of of how you characterize quests uh, right and mm. and if you look at some of the ways that games approach solving this like both guild wars later the guild wars 2 and assassins the assassins creed series are examples of games that turn what would be quests in wow into ambient things yeah. right and odyssey or something you arrive in this island you're told the moment you arrive, there are five chests here, there are 16 special guards, yeah, yeah, there yeah. are this many towers. And so that takes away the paralysis of, oh, I've got to go make sure I've got all the quests, or I've got yeah. to go make sure I picked everything up. They take that away from you, or, or they in different Assassin's Creed games, they attach it to different mechanics. But normally it's, once you've synchronized, that's essentially all synchronizing is, is uh, download all what would be all of the quests in this area to my eagle (laughs) you know um and that helps it feel manageable it feels very big you know that game certainly has a shopping list issue um but it doesn't you you know you have that you walk away with the comfort that you haven't missed anything um i don't think that's a i think it's only a partial solution to this like malaise of freely directed games like i think yeah it's just not very story based like because you're just doing stuff in a space yeah well it's 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 the it's it's why like it's the endless lament that like it, a lot of human beings struggle to be Tom Francis. Like, I mean, that's, you know, like, cause Tom naturally approached like, you know, Tom Skyrim diaries and things really good at approaching these games from a singular perspective and following that through. Mm-hmm. But games teach you to be acquisitive and to, and teach you that you failed if you haven't done anything. Achievements are also to blame here. We there's so many different things mm-hmm. you can point to that say that, you instill this mindset that content is there to be consumed, yeah. that these aren't experiences that you have. They are toy boxes that you empty. Um, yeah. So this is why I'm in conclusion. I'm right about the star Wars toy box thing. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, like, you know, um, and it's, it's funny, like, but I think a lot of people, if they if they approach the idea of a role playing game fresh, without the baggage that it's acquired in its digital kind of life, then you can still get people to role play, and you can still get people to make decisions and cut off content from themselves. And you know, Disco Elysium is the perfect example of that. Actually, mm. like you know, they actually managed to do that. Right? People saw value in being their particular detective and sharing that and exploring that rather than feeling that they had to do or be everything yeah there's also sort of there's a way of describing that content which is different in disco elysium than it is in other uh crpgs Mm. where other crpgs it's so distinct that you are embarking on a side quest like a side quest it has a very different feel Mm. to it it could be like oh it's a comedy side quest Oh, I've got to help the goblin find his socks. Uh, or something awful. The romance side quest. The romance side quest. Mm. At the end of this one, we're going to fade to black. Badouche. <laughs> you might say. Which won't make sense to me. <laughs> you might say that. You might say that if Bioware's writer's room were having a weird Friday. <laughs> and wanted to go home. <laughs> but, but in Disco Elysium, there's always an, a knowledge that any side quest you're doing is a digression from what you should be doing because mm. the characters themselves say, why are we fucking around here? You know, <laughs> yeah. don't we have a murder to solve? And uh, it always feels like 
there is a still a, a unity of effect. Like everything is pulling towards a single thread in Disco Elysium, even at its most digressionary, I think. Mm. Whereas that's not the feeling you get from any Bioware game or any um, uh, Elder Scrolls game, for example, where separate quests feel so separate. They feel like they're pulling in completely diff- different directions. They are almost a different game in terms of the kind of content. Right. I mean, I mean, the day, I mean, it's maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm going to fight for Disco Elysium, you know, until the cows come home, but Disco Elysium is a, an intimate game. Like mm. it's about a character which you play, which is pre-written, you know, right. And whatever. Whereas because I am there at pains for you to occupy your shell with whatever the fuck you want and oh, also absolutely. to fill a root of a much bigger world. I guess what I'm saying is it's not really, it's not the, exactly the fault of Skyrim that it's like that. It's a mm. choice about the kinds of stories that yeah, you tell okay. in those environments that make the anxiety more, more acute. Right. Or not. But if you, if you, so I think you're onto something though, because I think one of the issues is that players have too much power. Um, and too much preeminence in the world. Mm. Like I think Disco Elysium yeah, says yeah. you're not anyone, you are this person and you have a job. And if you're not doing that job, other people are going to go, why aren't you doing your job? Yeah. And we're going to give you some good reasons to not do your job. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you're not off the leash. And if you, one of the interesting things about Skyrim is, yeah, technically, like, so if, uh, vanilla Skyrim, or most of these RPGs, like, it's not just that you are the chosen one or that you're the hero that you created and you, you can be any number of different classes or, uh, races or whatever. That's not what's important. The important thing is that, like, fucking time moves when you tell it to. Right? Yeah. Like, you, the world state is, I mean, obviously you can, you know, burn through time and discolisium and stuff as well, but the point is, like, you are, you are given too many controls over the kingdom. Yeah, it's a playground. It's a playground. And, but if you counterpoint that with how many, if you go and look at the top 10 Skyrim mods, don't have willies. Um, and look at how many of them are, like, either survival related or, like, or something to do with adding a external force that affects the cadence of the player's right. actions. People, people want some kind of singularity. Right. To and to go back to 80 days, like timers are really good. Day night, like persona is a good example mm. of you, you have that, like what is traditionally associated with like life sim RPGs or even dating games where you've got to choose how you're going to use the hours in a particular mm. day. Right? right. Right. Like, you know, and then suddenly managing your mm. time goes from being something that you, the player is doing to being something the character is doing. And as soon as you've, you've achieved that translation, you're in a much healthier place because then the player is thinking, well, I don't have that much time today. I've got to do, you know, if Skyrim had, this is, this is in mm. fact, actually exactly what I was yeah. uh, thinking about when, when we first started talking about this question, it was that, you know, you get to white run in, in Skyrim. So you arrive in big town and you have one thing that you need to do beyond all others. And yeah. that is suddenly super important to you. And then, then it can sort of begin to kind of seed the seed, the other missions in over the course of that. Then that makes, then, then you're at least you're not dropped in with just like a hundred different right. things you can do, right? But I think that that, like, there's a massive tension in that because I can see, like, Tom Francis, uh, hating that. Like, yeah. how fucking yeah. dare you, you know, give me, <laughs> like, suggest all this freedom. Like, well, I want freedom. And now I go into the big town. Big town fucks me, you know? Hmm. I guess yeah. one of the, you know, cause I, I'm arguing for the environment where, like, yeah, you arrive in Whiterun. But the Yarl won't see you straight away because you're nobody. 
right? Yeah, right. So you, yeah. if you're really right. in the kind of life sim side of things, yeah, yeah. and this is explained to you. And the nice thing about this is it's like, you're going to have to live here a while, maybe do some jobs or, you know, choose how you're going to progress, but you're going to have to... It does do that in a couple of the places, I think. It does ease it does, you in a bit. But, yeah. but you're still the one, like, saying, I would like it to be 6 p.m. now. I will just... Just, I'm just gonna like stand in the middle of the road and be asleep. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah everyone else will figure it out. Certainly, like a, a timer is too crude, and it would annoy the Tom Francis of the world, which by no means we should. That is, ever. that is a ever a fate to be feared. Mm. You'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are, there's got to be certain ways in which you could just trim down the amount of content mm. for a period of time, and then allow it to be kind of seeded back in. I don't know. I mean, like uh, the more I play these sort of open world games, I I, I loved uh, I, I've loved a lot of the, the Elder Scrolls games, and I had a great time in what was the one preceding Skyrim? Jesus Christ, Oblivion. Oblivion, yeah. But I mean, that was a game about like freezing cows and pushing them down mountains, or trying to jump out of the skybox, or f- trying to see how many goblins you could be chased by. Yeah. You know, in, in a weird way, it was a game about sort of griefing the game itself rather mm. than uh, a game. And I, I kind of feel Populated like... with the most bullyable NPCs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's because I think ultimately, narratively, there wasn't really that much that engaged me. Yeah. And I think what I crave from experiences now are richer narratives that do engage me rather than the ability to break games, which is no longer novel to me. Um, you know, I can, I can just watch, you know, Games Done Quick for that. Uh, and... <laughs> Or I could make my own really broken games. But just the idea that... I, do, I, I want to be told a better story, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I think having things pulled together towards a single point is actually more effective to me now than it is to have the freedom to do lots and lots of different wacky shit. I actually don't want that wacky shit. I want somebody to communicate something of value to me and for that experience to be more designed. Yeah, it's uh, like, you know... Ultimately, you don't arrive in like Moss Eisley, steal a speeder and just start running over stormtroopers for 50 minutes. Right. right? You arrive in Moss Eisley to meet Han Solo and get a ship to get off. You know what I mean? Like there's mm. like a, a strong narrative through line is kind of the core of actually being able to tell a story, but it can't be forced. You just have to tell, give the player sufficient reason to Care. invest in that, yeah. you know, being the thing they're going to go and do. Yeah. You've forgotten who you are and there's uh, a crime outside that you're meant to be investigating. Yeah. What the fuck are you going to do about that? Yeah. Yeah. You're alone in the bushes and a horse is screaming. Mm. What are you going to do? Probably stay Ask in the bushes. Jim for help. <laughs> wait in the bushes until wait, Jim wait helps for, me. Yeah, wait yeah. for Daddy Hunter. <laughs> help me, Hunt Daddy. Save me. Appreciate me, Hunt Daddy. <laughs> I have value. That's the big swamp problem. <laughs> yeah. I say, as he revives me for the fourth time, having been eaten by dogs. <laughs> Good old Jim. Very patient man. Uh, TJ writes, hello. Do you have any weird sense memories about computer games? For me, the sensation of cool wind after a rain spell intensely reminds me of Tribes 2, possibly because of the rain dance map. I'm not sure. There's also a specific type of plastic smell (laughs) that reminds me of Dark Rain 2, because my dad brought a bootleg copy of it home from an overseas trip around the year 2000. The disc was flimsy in a flimsy DVD case. The game was rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> cheers uh tj house i yeah i was going to bring this up actually because um uh when we were talking about the mods because uh but it wasn't really about modding but i back in the 90s uh i fiddled around with mods for and wads for doom 
And um, I just bought a copy of Pulp's His and Hers. Oh, yeah. Mm. And that album, like that, if I listen to that album now, I am brought straight back to the room <laughs> in which my mum's computer was mm. and me fiddling around uh, with with Doom wads and them never running and weird sector problems. And, and I loved it. Oh. I was probably, that was probably only like two weekends probably. And that is indelibly linked. Yeah, wow. I can just brought back like my mind just clicks. Amazing. One of mine. One of mine's an album. Um, I was very, very, very ill the week that Dark Age of Camelot expansion, <laughs> Mists of Avalon, I think was it called? It was. A, I think it was the yeah. first expansion to that game. Um, God, is that what it was called? Anyway, it was the expansion that added Avalon um to Albion. And I was super ill, like I had the flu or something. And, but it was one of those like really kind of delirious woozy flus. <laughs> so I was off school. So I was, I was able to play my favorite game, Dark Age of Camelot. And, you know, and so I, uh, and its version of Avalon, I loved that game, but, and it had, cause it had this really peculiar sense of like MMO-ified British countryside, which is still a very strange thing to me. But its version of Avalon was basically Cornwall. Like it was sort of like, um, the sort of like sort of sun baked kind of brushland almost on the edge of the coast, like with weird, like sea monsters kind of squawking at you and things <laughs> like that. And I found a particular valley, um, off the main path with a few good spawns that I could farm because this pre wow era MMO play where you just find a place and you sit there for a week. And you fight the same mobs again and again and again and make runs back to town. And I did this while delirious with flu uh, for about a week, I think, while uh, listening to uh, Wishbone Ashes, The King Will Come, because I listened to a lot of noodly and prog adjacent sort of atmospheric rock about King Arthur at the time. <laughs> um see weirdly i was also undergoing my own arthurian uh, epiphany at this time but that's the reason i didn't play dark ages of camelot because i didn't didn't like the fact i had a minotaur on it that's a reasonable objection Whoa. which is the most chris now, thing i think i've ever done <laughs> yeah exactly i was like now who's a snob um and so for some reason like occasionally I'll, like if i hear that album I feel both ill and I can see that valley. And it's like, I can see it like it's a place I have been. Like, cause I sat on the side of it, regenning my health and stamina bar for the better part of a real weird week in 2004. Uh, <laughs> no, um, oh, yeah. Sorry. I actually you have more music. No, ones. no, no, no. Uh, smell of teasels, uh, for me brings back, uh, Super Mario Brothers 2. And in, wow. ge- and in general, NES games of that era, but particularly Super Mario Brothers 2, mm. um, uh, have a very strong sense connection between that, the smell of that room in my house, which was, I assume, predominantly governed by teasels, which were in that room, and, uh, the, the atmosphere of a shaded room inside Super Mario Brothers 2. When you go inside, uh, rooms, it f- f- sort of flips to the other side of the, the scene and there's a, a door which casts a, a shaft of light, which is your entrance and exit into that, that space. And even though that's really basically described in terms of the pixels, it's still one of the most atmospheric <laughs> looking things, I think, in games. Uh, and yeah, that, uh, that smell, man. Mm. Hmm. In my. Reminds me strongly. Uh, I have a, 
smell and taste one as well, hmm. um, which is I used to get home from work when I first moved to Bath and cook. And I got into the habit of cooking, uh, making a sort of creamy pasta sauce with loads of black pepper in it, like black peppercorns, spinach and pasta and pancetta. And that's what I would eat basically. And that's what Dota 2 tastes like. <laughs> Genuinely, like I, I would make peppery kind of cream sauce with pancetta, mm. which is quite nice. Healthy. Just like Dota 2. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I would play like five games of Dota 2 in my little room and mm. then I would go to sleep and then I'd wake up and go to work and do it again. And that was, um, yeah. And so that's what that game tastes like, even if over the years it has changed. Actually, so that's what playing Dota 2 tastes like. Watching Dota 2 tastes like the very specific breaded fried chicken fillets they sell <laughs> in the Key Arena Stadium in Seattle. Because that is the only food they sell at the international, like within the premises and you can't bring food in. So you just eat chips and these very specific, um, sort of, um, very kind of American hyper processed, like chicken type matter. (laughs) Like, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's what watching does taste like. Beautiful. Hmm. That's fitting really. Yeah. I remember being ill, uh, every time we were ill, uh, as children, the, the kind of entertainments for us weren't necessarily video games, but there was, uh, there was always the Bakshi Lord of the Rings, uh, on video cassette, mm. which I have unsuccessfully defended in our Discord channel as the best, <laughs> best adaptation that is. of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> That's which, a take. Which was, I agree, a bold move, but, uh, it's still an insane one that I stand by. And also, uh, the original BBC video, uh, uh, BBC oh, adaptation. No, no, not the radio adaptation. Sorry. The TV adaptation of, of Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, right, right, right. Um, which, uh, I still, still very fondly of. And, uh, the theme tune, which is by the Eagles, I think it's called Journey of the Magician, which is quite fitting for this podcast. Mm. Maybe it's Journey of the Wizard. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, still makes me feel slightly queasy when I listen to it, but also <laughs> delighted. Yeah. We're definitely the children of an era of media where it was becoming less acceptable to just fucking put a wizard in it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was that? Uh, there was a TV show which was dun- literally Dungeons and Dragons, right? What was it called? Um, Nightmare. Dragons. No, not Nightmare. Was it called yeah, Dungeons and the Dragons? The one with the cartoon. cartoon with the yeah. kids in it. Yeah, yeah. And then it's, it's basically what the comic that Kieran Gillen has written. <laughs> Die. Oh, Die. Die, yeah. yeah. And it's the people who are playing Dungeons and Dragons, they get sucked into the game, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Jumanji, uh, as it's also known. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. Not meant to take away from But it's Kieran also like the era of like, you know, I don't know, the British rock had finished absorbing all of the last bits of energy of, of, of blues and anything they could mm. nick from black American musicians, basically. And then they were like, what do we write about now? Lord of the Rings, I guess. Yeah. yeah. yeah but, then, but then that, that quickly kind of curdled into irony. Uh, yeah. There was, a, there was a, there's a, like a winking period where it wasn't ironic. That is where my entire aesthetic resides. <laughs> 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 like. <laughs> Where it's like, yeah, you go logically from, you know, let's, this is a, we've repurposed a Howling Wolf song to <laughs> this is about a niche part of the Silmarillion and like somewhere in that vanishing space of like, I don't know, fucking Jimmy Page's mind <laughs> is like teen me, like discovering what I like. <laughs> <laughs> Steph writes, dear gribbles and goblins, a game has died. Shit. Said game was 
A Year of Rain, an RTS by otherwise quite successful studio Daedalic. The team went silent a month after their early access launch and has just confirmed that they are now moving on to other projects due to a lack of sales. I believe I only saw them mentioned once on any given news site and never at all on any journalist social media that I follow. Not even the normally strategy-leaning types. It seems few people heard of it, compounding the already off-putting nature of early access. Perhaps it deserved death, perhaps it did not. But this one game is not alone in dying of obscurity. Far from it. Games media clearly do not have a responsibility to spotlight any given game, but they do have that power, which they seem to wield preferentially in favour of the games people already talk about. And yet, games media is not a chortling council of robed masterminds, but is also beholden to a more terrible power, the humble click, the page view, the fungible metric. (laughs) Fungible, did you say? I did say fungible. (laughs) Badoosh. (laughs) Fungible badoosh. This just proves to me you're going to edit that (laughs) bit from earlier in somewhere, Marty, or you wouldn't be talking about... I don't know what you mean. (laughs) He's like the puppet master. I don't know what my true question is, but I am deeply uncomfortable with a media ecosystem that rewards already successful games and punishes the risky in the new, and would like to hear you clever folks chat about it. If there must be a question mark, what would it take to reduce the attention inequality between the haves and the haves-nots? Cheers and happy drinking, Steph. This is one of those questions where I kind of wish we had Graham or Tom Senior or both, um, because those are men whom work directly with this kind of ecosystem every day and I suspect would reject some of the basic principles of this question. So in a spirit of kind of getting there, not in, not in a, not in a mean-spirited way, but like both uh, PC Gamer and RPS, but I know particularly RPS have do run and have run uh, games about um, raising the visibility of interesting niche or, or kind of games that might otherwise be right. Yes, yeah. Sin Vega has a column yeah. on there. Which uh, is Cat Rooster has one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, these things definitely do exist, uh, and they tend to be weight. And this is kind of the brutal part of this. They tend to be weighted towards things that are more niche than early access RTS games. By a reasonably big publisher. By a reasonably well. big publisher. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, so the the thing here is not that niche games don't get attention, it's that games in the middle don't get attention, mm. right? The, the like, and I, I completely understand, like, and I understand now better than I did maybe before that emotionally as a indie dev, it can be crushing to be overlooked. But I would contend that the most dangerous place to put yourself is in the middle. It's in like an established genre that maybe higher budget studios are doing more things with while also being aesthetically or in whatever way less uh, immediately obviously original than the smallest, nichest <clears throat> indie games. And yet being very expensive to make still. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are probably specific reasons that this game uh, didn't make it out of early access that are different from uh, the general trend that Steph is observing, which I think is probably, I mean, generally speaking, right in that media in general tends to focus on the things that are already popular because there is money in that. And I think that's a problem which just resides in the whole economic system of the way that we monetize the internet. And I don't think there's any we- easy way of... Well, there's, there's uh, more to it than that. that. Because, oh, for sure, yeah. Because but, yeah. Like, there's also like... Everywhere has limited resources, like, you know, whether yes. you're a big operation or a little, why would you write an article which will satisfy 
a van- you know a very small proportion of your readership when you could write something which is going to satisfy a large proportion of your readership. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that there's yeah, a moral. Uh, uh, ob- but it's not. It's not. I mean, like the, obviously, there's an economic question here. But like, and you know, and the clicks is usually invoked in in yeah. when, when this this topic is discussed. But it's not like clicks is also people's interest. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. I don't read a lot of stuff when it's not interesting to me. I'm not going to look at it. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, like, I, and I'm sure that's the, the, the same for everybody, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, when I talk about the clicks, I'm thinking about in a very general sense where aggregation, uh, SEO has changed the shape of the internet very, in a very broad way from being something where everything is very diffuse, but incredibly curated to, uh, a small number of sites which are heavily focused on search traffic, basically. Uh, mm. And if you think about the number of sites that you actually visit now versus when the internet mm. sort of started uh, reaching a mass market in 1994 or whatever. I mean, I was surfing the web, man, back in 1994. I was going to places and it was individuals talking to me, telling me about their tastes and habits. And, no, I'm going to tell you something. And then there were blogs and now I visit four sites and I hate every one of them. So I'm going to tell you something. Tell me. I still use RSS and it's fucking what? the best, the better internet, the best internet. You pervert. Because it, because, <laughs> because I, I actually read like a variety of people and I don't have mm. to wade through all the crap at all. And it just gets sent to me. Yeah. Like I'm, I will evangelize RSS and RSS readers forever. It's one of those. He's one of those. Old. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. That's the thing. Cause it is awful. The internet. I mean, like, yeah, cause discovery mechanisms aren't good. Like, yeah. you know, by, by whatever kind of system, even if it's social media traction or something else, it's a little bit like it all boils down to what people are interested in and maybe what has some cachet. Yeah. Also, sense. also, I think that like, uh, maybe people just aren't interested in finding games that they haven't heard about. Like, who is that for? Ultimately, yeah. that stuff is for game journalists, really. I mean, most people have more games than they can ever play, ever. And really, they aren't looking for more distraction, I yeah. think. Right. I think, like, who's out there saying, wow, if only I had another indie game that I hadn't heard of to play and, you know, buy <laughs> this week. Yeah, yeah no I mean, one, like, it's one of those great inaccuracies. Like, no one plays in abstract, right? Mm. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? What are you doing? Like, like... Th- no one plays video games like people play video games on TV, right? Where they are shot. Hey, I'm from gonna go the, play video games. Where they're shot from the television's perspective, right, yeah. waving a controller around. Mm. Yeah, which isn't they, even plugged in usually. Which isn't usually plugged in. They are doing something specific that appeals to them. They're playing a specific game, and mm. everything that you know, almost everything that gets people to that position is marketing. And, and, that, yeah, and, that, and that's that's kind of like one of the things. Like th- this whole question is predicated on the the media's actual actual influence yeah. on whether games are popular or not the the, mm. the thing to bring this back to is one of the other things you do see when people do post-mortems on games um you know to be fair to clifford um to be fair to the big red dog himself the um <laughs> the like um or what is his name dude huge yes. um the <laughs> um the, the you know reaching for my uh, first person futuristic shooter was too woke is a relatively rare one. That is well, a shiny Pokemon it, of yeah, excuses. It shows introspection, right? 
Right. No, it's also nonsense. Yeah, but like, yeah. the, the, um, it is, but Incorrect it is. Incorrect introspection. But of, of the, of the places that people, or the places that devs go emotionally when things don't find traction with an audience, one of the more common ones is mm. the press ignored us yeah, and therefore yeah, yeah. we didn't have traction. Yeah. And that can mean a bunch of things. It can mean like, and it's funny if you respond to that with maybe you didn't approach marketing in the right way, that doesn't mean that you should have that doesn't mean that the press will take your money to market the game because they fucking don't. It's, hmm. you know, it's, it means that, um, the press isn't there to be your marketing agency. I don't know how it. much effect the press really has at all no. anymore. I mean, uh, yeah. certainly, I mean, there's been plenty of big games which have become successful without any press marketing whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It was a surprise to me when I heard about League of, <laughs> League of Legends and that it had millions of players. I was like, what? <laughs> What's that? Which is pathetic, obviously, yeah. on my part. But at the same time, proves that we aren't really important. Or, I say we. I'm not one of them anymore. Neither am I. Don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, but you're right. Because, like, the, yeah, the, the purpose of the games press is to serve interesting material to people who read the games press. Hmm. And hopefully expand that group of people who read the games press by making nice things that more people like. It is not to advertise a particular game. It is not to, like, there is no, uh, greater good to be served here. There's no public good. And that's a really crucial one. Mm. Like, it's not like, it's not journalism in the traditional sense where there's some public interest or public health to be advanced through a certain method of reporting or approach to reporting. There is certainly public good to be advanced through the good, well-financed, this came up in a previous podcast, reporting on serious issues that affect the industry, etc. That's almost not just a different kind of journalism. It's almost a different fucking industry to the one that most games yeah. media exists in. Um, certainly when it comes to a training perspective. So, like, it's, yeah, like, I just, I just don't really buy the notion that it's there to... Uh, serve the health of the industry as a whole because yeah. only because it's it's almost like expecting the least powerful or the group with the least power in that equation mm. to, yeah. to actually affect that. Also, just to talk about this game in in a specific detail now, I I I, I hadn't heard of it prior to this question, but I did look it up, and although it's impossible for me to look back uh, on the data that's available to me and say for sure why it failed. It did enter early access and then was cancelled only after three months. Um, yeah, which isn't, that is which is not yeah. terribly long. And it also entered early access at quite a high price point for an unfinished game at £21 mm. or so. And it apparently it had fairly serious issues. Um, so those things... What no matter the title what, of the game again? Well, this is the other thing. It was called A Year Without Rain, I think. I've shut, shut on my phone now, but I think that's what it's called. Which is a Year of a, Rain. Sorry, A Year of Rain, which is not a great title for an RTS game. Um, I guess it looks like a sci-fi kind of fantasy sci-fi. Um, I didn't, I didn't get a sense of what it actually aesthetically was going for it's from colorful. its video. But I mean, so it's not clear what it's really about aesthetically. Has an ambiguous name. Even though it came from a kind of proven studio, it, it, it launched with a lot of bugs, uh, and it didn't have enough time to fix them, which suggests of funding problems internally within the studio. Like, I mean, you can't really rely on early access to be the, the silver bullet to, to fund your game. Yeah. Like, uh, it's the answer. And, and particularly not without a really clear pitch, which I'm not getting. If there is one, then there may well be one, but like yeah. the name doesn't tell you the experience to expect. 
I'm not sure what problem yeah. is being solved there. Maybe it was really good. Um, but, but, uh, ah, ah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not obvious from well, the outside. Well, I mean, if it was a, like taking that it was good, because obviously I appreciate that the question asker had an investment in it that comes mm. from somewhere in the community there. This is a really tough position to be in. And it's almost typical of the games in the middle being a good example of an existing genre is a really tough position to yeah. market. It's, it's either really great. Or it's like the worst. Yeah. How do you exp- like it? Because you're, you are, you're defining your own niche before you've even started, right? Yeah. Like your, your, your audience is people who appreciate better than average RTS games. Yeah. That's it. That's the audience. Mm-hmm. Like, which is the genre that's on the massively on the wane as well. Well, really, has is been, it? has been, you know, hmm. interest in Warcraft three. Well, let's well, not start. On I that. mean, interestingly, this was compared to Warcraft three in a lot of the, the Steam reviews. Well, that's that interesting it was, it was because old school, but co-op Warcraft Three was the exactly what the uh, it was Warcraft Three got released. <laughs> yeah, then then Warcraft Three got actually came back yeah. just to kill this game. Uh, but then it killed itself. Then it killed. Did it? <laughs> I don't know. It's apparently in the process of that. But let's not go on to that. Why not? Because all right, oh, I, I see. Must, I must return to my coffin. <laughs> <laughs> well, he turns back into a coffin. <laughs> Shall we, shall we wrap this thing up then? This baby. Let's put a bow on it. Wrap this baby up. Yes, those were all the questions we had time for. That's the phrase that we use. Uh, send those questions to this baby in the feature. <laughs> <laughs> questions at baby.com. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the desperate helpline for confused fathers everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, questions at creightandcrowbar.com. You can send us, uh, questions on, on Twitter as well at creightandcrowbar. Uh, who knows who reads them? <laughs> I certainly don't. <laughs> um, you can watch, uh, or rather listen to these episodes on YouTube as well at youtube.com slash creightandcrowbar. Or you can join us on our very lively and excellent Discord community. The link for which is on our webpage, creatingcrowbar.com. They're lovely people. They really are lovely people. They They're really here are. to tell you that you're wrong about Lord of the Rings. They are, and they're and that's probably what makes correct, them sadly. <laughs> I still think Peter Jackson's version is shit. Anyway. Uh, they're mutually exclusive things. They're mu- they're, are they? What? Hang on, which ones? I feel strongly about this. <laughs> Alex, clarify yourself. I regret speaking up. <laughs> Back in the box. You can say something about rotoscoping next time. I'm just going to kick off. Uh, thanks, as always, to our wonderful Patreon backers. They are lovely people. Thank you for your contributions. You can also contribute to the creation of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> At patreon.com slash Creighton Cobra. Cobra. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Fucking a Boba. solo. McClunky. That was a little excerpt from Rise of Skywalker there. <laughs> uh, thanks. Anyway, I've been Marsh Davis. I'm sorry. Who have you been? Are I've you been, sorry? I am very sorry. <laughs> Thank God. And I've been Alex Wilshire. Uh, I've been Chris Thurston and I, uh, stopped feeling <laughs> quite a long time ago. Oh. <laughs>
Two fists. Two fists. One opinion. Welcome to my YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, Christopher, would you say the word bardouche as though you are making love to the English language? Bardouche! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, as you're trying to seduce the English language. Bardouche. Ooh, very good. Uh, Alex, fungible maybe? Fungible. Very good. Those are sexy words. <laughs> My fundable, fungible, fungible badouche. badouche. It's as if you're trying badouche. to construct outro. No, definitely not going to happen. <laughs> we will cut this part out.